Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States. First president born to immigrant parents. Only president to serve in both the American Revolution and the War of 1812. First president to be a resident of a state other than Massachusetts or Virginia. The hard-nosed son of Scotch-Irish immigrant rednecks who was quick to throw down in a duel. He fought in the Revolutionary War at the age of 13 and then fought off a would-be assassin with a cane at the age of 68. And he fought a whole bunch of other people in between. First president to be assaulted while in office. First to have someone try to kill him while in office. And now, long in the grave, his legacy fights to be known for more than slave ownership and the infamous Trail of Tears. He was a polarizing man in his lifetime and has been even more polarizing in death. He was a war hero, an accomplished president, and and a dedicated, loving husband. He was also arguably harder on American Indians than any other president and a hard-ass slave owner as well. You probably won't love everything about him, but if you don't respect at least some of the life he lived, well, then you just weren't paying attention today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. And hail Lucifina. I'm Dan Cummins, the Master Sucker, Prophet of Nimrod, plaything of Lucifina. Sometime Chew Toy of Bojangles. And you, dear Meat Sack, are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the cult of the curious. So get the fuck in here. There's room. We made room for you. Over there, in the corner. No, not there. Yeah, there you go. You smell good today. You smell like you're about to get a little smarter. Good for you. Well, well played. Recording the Suck Dungeon this fine fall day with Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley, Queen of Suck, Lindsay, going to be in here soon. Not in here in the studio, but, but in the building. Time Suck today is sponsored by the War and Conquest podcast hosted by Time Sucker Neil Eckert. Neil presents a weekly series that spends multiple weeks on one specific civilization to give you a well-rounded look at the who, the what, the when, the where, the there, the how, and roughly 30-minute installments. He touches on often overlooked aspects of major historical moments missed by other podcasts and presentations and throws in a bit of historical humor to keep it moving. He also struggles a bit with certain tricky names. I get that. And uses ton of pop culture and movie references to explain, for example, ancient warfare. His first in-depth look is into the civilization of Macedon, which covers the life and conquest of future time suck topic Alexander the Great. And again, did I mention he's a time sucker? The podcast spawning more podcasts. I love it. I love it. Listen to War and Conquest. Get to go deep on some history on iTunes, Castbox, tons of other popular podcast apps. Hail Nimrod. Link in today's episode description. Also, uh, new merch. Lots of it in the store today. Uh, I've already been wearing it. You space lizards. You know you've you've known about it for a few days now. Uh, Queen of the Suck, Danger Brain, Access Apparel, worth their heinies off. Worth worth their worth their bottoms off. To create our coolest line of products yet. Uh, first things first, that new Time Suck hat you already know about. The second generation Time Suck Snapback Beauty does now truly come in a big boy Frankenstein uh, Frankenstein size now. If you ordered this hat and it wasn't the right big boy fit, well, we'll exchange it. We'll exchange your regular size hat for the new big fit in the store. Uh, it took a lot of wrangling, but Axe has got the company we used to realize they'd made a, a great hat, but not a giant head hat as promised. But now we're good. And now it's even better because now, now we have uh, two options. We have regular fit and uh, and big fit. And both 700% imported possum dick fur and 300% domestic bald eagle butthole for maximum quality and durability. We also don't have a second generation heathered royal blue and mustard yellow poly cotton super soft blend 
hoodie made out of 400% imported lemur belly button. So soft. Uh, softer than the first generation hoodie. It's a bellow blend. Soft like those, uh, you know, first couple uh, Time Suck shirts. Uh, if it's true to size, click, click the store link in the episode description uh, or on the app, you know, or, or on the Time Suck website to look at this beauty and the rest of this stuff. Uh, the manufacturer we, we used to make the first uh, um, Time Suck hoodie is, is no longer uh, making that cut. So we upgraded to the same district poly blend as the new Space Lizard hoodie. Uh, that's why the cost went up a little bit. It's a new district blend. It's thicker. Uh, not quite as soft as the Blue Bella hoodie. A little more athletic fit. I actually prefer this one. Uh, a little tighter fit than the Blue hoodie. Might run a tiny bit small, even though I go between large, extra large, and the large fits me just fine. And this is what we used, uh, this same uh, uh, cut for the new Secret Suck uh, hoodie. Yes, I wore uh, mine mountain climbing in Riggins, Idaho with Kyler this past weekend where I felt like I just about died from exhaustion. Uh, I can barely walk today. But worth it. Worth it to make it to the top. I've been wearing it everywhere. 347% imported King Cobra face skin for maximum coolness and don't fuck with me or I'll kill you ness. Lucifina approved. That's probably what the, this is probably the one that Andrew Jackson would have wore. Uh, also, third generation Secret Suck t-shirt now here. First non-black design and suck we trust. Illuminati inspired danger brain beauty. Comes in men's and women's cuts. Made out of 250% moon matrix photons. So you can manipulate others' reality. And it's also an all-made tee. Very excited about this uh, this co-branding we're doing with Allmade. Uh, we are now brand ambassadors for Allmade T-shirts, a new company. Uh, Allmade Tri-Blends use six plastic water bottles in each shirt, recycled polyester. They use U.S.-grown organic cotton and some sort of magic shit called tensile modal, which comes from sustainably harvested beech trees cut down in European forests. Hitting lots of co- continents here. Uh, beech trees regenerate from the roots so you can cut them down and they can regrow themselves and not you know fuck up the soil around them. In addition, the shirts are sewn together in Haiti. Uh, workers are paid uh, three to four times local rate, an amount calculated to meet the basic needs of a Haitian household. Also, 100% of the profits from the sale of the shirts from the Haitian Production Center called Life go to the Global Orphan Project, which works to help reduce the amount of orphans and provide a better life for orphans. So much good stuff. You can go to allmade.com. Link in the episode description for more info on this on this partnership. Got to keep marching forward with the, with the feel-good, do-good vibes. Uh, we also have a Secret Suck vinyl sticker now. Also, a lot of listeners have been asking for beanies. We have two options, both in two colors. First option, acrylic slouchy beanie, snowboarder style. Fits all heads, including my monster head. Uh, 215% domestic polar bear ball sack for maximum warmth and protection. Comes in black, faded navy blue. And we also have more of a traditional beanie, sometimes called a fisherman beanie, sometimes called a wharf beanie, sometimes called a fucking weenie beanie by me when I make that up. 312% imported elk grundle for maximum warmth and grundleness. Uh, I can't wear it. It's a little bit, a little bit too small for my head, but it fits 95% of the world's head population. Black and traditional red. Generation 8 t-shirts now in stock. Another all-made shirt. Light heathered gray mustard design. 400% homing pigeon feathers for maximum comfort and increased ability to find your way home when wearing it. They fit true to size. Uh, a women's Gen 8. That's a separate design. Blend of mustard, turquoise, and magenta lettering. That you have to see for yourself. Easily my favorite women's design so far. 600% imported cheetah pussy for maximum sexiness and speed to take on and off and reduce annoying changing time. Also a tote bag in the store. Natural canvas tote. Royal blue lettering. 1,000% iguana dick for top shelf durability and ruggedness. And then coming soon, we got some coffee tumblers and a Lucifina ladies sleepwear, uh, sleepwear set. Those things just take a little more time to get right. We're trying to put more work in uh, product tests 
to make sure when stuff comes out, it's a, it's a home run. So uh, lots of good stuff. And be sure you use or use your spaces or discount code at checkout. So when you buy that merch, you're also paying for your membership. Win, win, win. All right, quick tour dates and then on to Andrew, I promise. I know I had a mouthful to get out today. Portland, Oregon, this week, fucking get there. September 27th to the 29th. Uh, it's Northwest Comedy Mecca, known as the Helium Comedy Club. Flatters tour stand-up shows and live Metamoros Narco Satan is Cult podcast on September 30th. SoCal, October 5th and 6th at the Rec Room in Huntington Beach. Tacoma Comedy Club, October 11th through 13th. Another live Metamoros podcast on the 14th. All that's going to be so much fun. The rest of the year's tour dates, DanCummins.tv, Columbus, Ohio, Buffalo, New York, Spokane, St. Louis, Grand Rapids, Michigan, coming down the 2018 tour pipe. And now if you'll excuse me, I have to get down and dirty. And I have to fucking suck a dude named Andrew Jackson. Are you feeling that Mexican mocha I'm sipping on? I'm feeling it. I'm pushing it into the suck. All right. As we tend to uh, do here in the suck, let's, let's kick things off by giving a little bit of context to what we're talking about today. And today the context is the pre-revolutionary and early colonial life of America. 1775, over 2 million people lived in the 13 American colonies and about 500,000 of them lived in Virginia, the largest and most populous colony by far. Many of these people were farmers who lived and worked in small farms of less than 200 acres, which seems pretty big to me, especially for the people who had to farm them, especially back before tractors and AC. Uh, Bar share plows pulled by horses or oxen prepared new seeds. Uh, New seed beds by turning under uh, weeds and surface material, exposing fresh soil to the humid East Coast heat. Sickles and scythes used to harvest any grains the soil produced. People out there just grim reaper in their harvests. Probably wearing hoods and skeleton costumes. I doubt it. Cotton taken off in production after 1793 and Eli Whitney's creation of the cotton gin was harvested by hand. My back hurts just thinking about that. Out there just bent over in a field. None of the hot sun, fingers blistered and bleeding. No no Yeti water bottle to keep a cool refreshment at your side. No ice. Can't even buy ice at the store. Not even a good store to go to. No 7-Eleven. No slushy. What kind of cruel world doesn't have ready, readily available cold stuff? It's gross. All right, Mr. Time Machine Captain, can you please take me the hell out of the pre-colonial America? I don't like it. All right, thank you. A relatively small number of Virginians were wealthy planners or merchants, and only about 2% of the population lived in Virginia's few small towns and cities like York, Norfolk, Richmond, Williamsburg, Fredericksburg. That's nuts, man. Only 2% live in actual towns and cities. Everyone else living out in their farms, living in plantation homes, living away from doctors and civilization in the days of no telephone and automobiles. I remember getting nervous sometimes growing up in Riggins, Idaho, because it's just under an hour's drive from any sort of hospital. Almost an hour to a, to a town of just a few thousand people, like Grangeville and McCall, that have tiny, tiny hospitals, like a one-story hospital, if you can even imagine that. Picture a normal hospital. Imagine walking on any floor of that hospital. Now imagine that's the only floor of the whole hospital. Now take that and cut it in half and then cut it in half again and then round up the 10 best doctors and nurses and get rid of them. And that's the hospital I was born in. One with no specialized surgeons, one with very limited trauma care facilities. Uh, I was always painfully aware that if something bad happened to me, accident-wise growing up, it's gonna take a long time for the ambulance to even make it to me. And then the people working in the ambulance were just local. Oh man, I ugh, I remember a few of them. I don't want to throw their family names under the under the bus, but oh shit. I was like, oh, that's who's fucking picking me up in the ambulance? Okay, I'll just be dead then. Great. Uh, people with no formal education beyond high school, uh, you know, maybe a weekend workshop or two into how to be an EMT. People just volunteered, do about five ambulance runs a year. 
And those jackalopes would have to drive me an hour to be seen by a doctor not experienced in trauma medicine to any significant degree because if he or she were, they'd be working in a bigger hospital. It just seemed like death was much more likely than it would be if I lived in the city. But back then, way worse. One accident and you're just dead. Every time. Almost every question of, "Uh, doctor, am I going to be okay? Is met with the truth of, oh, oh, no. No, 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 probably not. You're probably going to die. I'd save almost zero patients. They probably probably didn't say that, but that was the truth. I guess maybe back then you'd just be uh, probably those just as dead in in town, though, I guess, as you would in the country. Doctors maybe just didn't really matter. Your dad could probably cut off your arm and cauterize the wound as well as a doctor. Anyway, I've gotten way off track. Things are very farm-orientated in 1775 in the colonies. Not a big urban culture with the Industrial Revolution just barely getting started. Uh, Also, about 200,000 of the people living in Virginia were enslaved African-Americans, most of whom— Worked in, uh, worked in, excuse me, in tobacco fields, and all of whom lived uh, even shittier lives than the shitty lives of even the poorest white people. Top 5% or so of the white population of Virginia and Maryland in the mid-18th century were planters who possessed growing wealth and increasing political power and social prestige. They controlled the local Anglican church, choosing ministers and handling church property and dispersing local charity. About 60% of white Virginians were part of a broad middle class that owned substantial farms. Of course, this varied from colony to colony. For example, in North Carolina, many farmers were just uh, at the subsistence level. But overall, life had come a long way since that uh, 1609 first permanent English settlement at Jamestown. Uh, we'll be talking about early settlements uh, a bit next week, by the way, with the lost colony of Roanoke Suck. Uh, by the mid-18th century, a variety of artisans, shopkeepers, and merchants provided services to the growing farming population. Shipbuilding, also a profitable industry, owing to the enormous old-growth forests and booming transatlantic trade market. Blacksmiths, wheelwrights, furniture makers setting up shops in rural villages, repairing goods needed by farm families. Stores being set up by traders selling English-made products like cloth, iron, utensils, window glass, as well as West Indian products such as sugar and molasses. The storekeepers of these shops sold their imported goods in exchange for crops and other local products, including roof shingles uh, and barrel staves. These local goods were shipped to towns and cities all along the Atlantic coast. Enterprising men setting up stables and taverns along wagon roads to serve this transportation system. A variety of merchants became very wealthy by providing their increasingly complex inventory of goods to the agricultural population. And this new merchant class of settlers ended up dominating the society of these seaport cities. Uh, the early Sam Waltons and Jeff Bezos. Unlike farm, uh, you know, plain farmhouses, these merchants lived in elegant two-and-a-half-story houses designed in the New Georgian style, imitating the lifestyle of the upper class of England. Other populations in uh, colonial America included about 60,000 Irish and 50,000 Germans who came to live in British North America, many of them settling in the Mid-Atlantic region. The Germans primarily kept themselves, speaking German, attending Lutheran churches, marrying their own kind, plotting horrible shit. Germans, always got to keep an eye on them. Lindsay's half German. Her mom, Joan, full German. And Joan seems nice, but you have to wonder, what is she plotting? What is she scheming? Anyway, William Penn founded the colony of Pennsylvania in 1682 and attracted an influx of British Quakers with his policies of religious liberty and freehold ownership. So if you live in or near a city or even moderately prosperous uh, as a farmer, you could sustain yourself in the new colonies of America. Better yet, your kids have the chance of getting to work for a merchant, hopefully rising up the ranks, making more money especially if they're involved in artisanal trades such as blacksmithing, opportunities abound for most early colonists. However, if you're Scotch-Irish, like Andrew Jackson's family was, there are going to be less opportunities for you uh, in the area around the Carolinas where Jackson's family immigrated, and here's why. As a late-arriving group, 
the Scotch-Irish found that land in the coastal areas of the British colonies was either already owned or too expensive for many of those dirtbags to buy. So they, they, they quickly left for the more mountainous interior where land could be obtained cheaply. Early frontier life was extremely challenging, but poverty and hardship were familiar to them, and they managed to carve out hard lives for themselves. The term redneck actually comes from 16th century Scotland. Did not know that Scots were the real rednecks until this week. Protestant rebels, Presbyterians actually, signed manifestos in their own blood and then wore red cloths around their necks to signify their rebellion during the Bishop's War of 1640 in Scotland. And then this uh, term, this redneck term, became a slur used to describe Scottish and Scotch-Irish commoners arriving in colonial America, where they were looked down upon by the original English settlers as seen as rugged, you know, crude, uncultured. And then there was the term hillbilly. Now, uh, those two terms to me, are the big two outside of just straight up calling somebody white trash. When you call someone a redneck or like a hillbilly, you know, you're shitting on them. Uh, you know, like they're just some fucking dirtbag. Unless you consider yourself a redneck or hillbilly and then you just kind of add ownership and, and pride to the term. I know that can happen as well. But the, the term hillbilly, yeah, also Scottish origin. Fucking Scots, man. I've, uh, so apparently my name, uh, last name Cummins comes from Scotland. Figures. Just look at me. Just look at me. You, you can see the white trash bone structure in my face. And all the ancestors I know of, which granted aren't many, uh, have been very poor and or criminals. Apparently some Cumminses uh, rode with the Jesse James gang, from what my Uncle Phil tells me. Could it be possible that my Polish wife actually has lowered herself marrying my Scottish, possibly, possibly Scottish redneck hillbilly ass? Am I the real dirtbag? Son of a bitch. Got to get my 23andMe sent in. Figure out what, exactly what kind of dirty meat sack I am. Anyway, the term hillbilly comes from the term hillfolk. Scots from the highlands of Scotland. Highlanders! There can be only one. They were called hill folk. And during another war in the 1600s, the Scots who supported King William of England were called Billy Boys. After their patron, right? William, Bill, Billy. Uh, King Billy. Uh, hill folk who were also Billy Boys were then called Hill Billy Boys, which was eventually shortened to Hillbillies. And the name followed them to colonial America, where it was also used uh, derogatorily. You know, it carried connotations of poverty, backwardness, and violence. Well, without much cash, these early redneck hillbillies moved to free lands on the frontier, becoming the typical Western squatters. Frontier guard of the colony, what a historian Frederick Jackson Turner described as the cutting edge of the frontier. This put the Scottish-Irish settlers at the forefront of the fights with the American Indians who lived in the frontier. Scotch-Irish settlements frequently destroyed. Their settlers killed in these clashes with, you know, with American Indians, which may partially explain Andrew Jackson's later policies towards American Indians. Uh, considering he was born into this uh, redneck hillbilly culture. So now let's, let's, let's take a look at his actual life and jump into today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. All right, March 15th, 1767. In the Waxhaws region of the Carolinas, an area so remote at the time that the border between North and South Carolina, where the Waxhaws regions lay, had not been officially surveyed. Andrew motherfucking Jackson, born to Scott-Irish redneck hillbillies, Andrew and Elizabeth Betty Hutchinson Jackson. He was actually shit out, hillbilly style, into a swamp. Well, look here now, I got some puke, touch this puke, ever did lick out of my woman's beard. Well, look at here now, with the full belly, I made a baby with the woman on mine, and he grew up to be the president. Woo! Yeah, 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 woo! That's the old Time Suck Piney song. Easily adaptable to the Redneck Hillbilly song. Okay, back to other real, uh, to, the, to the real world most people live in now. If you're wondering 
what Andrew's real middle name was. He didn't have one. And considering the life he would lead, uh, motherfucking seems appropriate. Shout out to President Jackson, by the way, for having one last word for me to butcher. Andrew Jackson. I can nail those words today. Andrew Jackson. Crushing them. Jackson's father was born in uh, Carrick, Fergus, which is present-day Northern Ireland, around 1738. We're not sure where his mother was from. Probably got shit out as well. Probably got shit out in some Scottish swamp. Probably the butt baby of some other redneck Scottish hill ape. Probably born with beady eyes and an upper lip full of chewing tobacco. Andrew Jackson's parents immigrated to North America uh, through Philadelphia in 1765, where they were chased out of the city by angry torch and pitchfork wielding mob uh, yelling stuff like, Back to hell, you damn freckled hillbilly demons. Burn the rednecks and their beady-eyed, sordid, red-headed spawn. They weren't chasing anywhere that I know of. Uh, they left with their two children, Hugh, uh, who was two years old, Robert, one years old. The family traveled through the Appalachian Mountains, found a Scotch-Irish community in the Waxhaus region. And then poor Andrew Jackson Sr. died almost immediately after arriving. He died in a logging accident in February 1767, three weeks before Andrew Jr. was born. Andrew Sr. was only 29. Elizabeth then took her children to live with uh, other dirty redneck Scottish subhuman relatives nearby. And Andrew went to a school taught by a raccoon who was deemed to be better equipped to teach than any of the recent uh, Scottish immigrants. Now, he was educated by two local priests through elementary school uh, who provide the majority of his formal education. On April 19, 1775, the Revolutionary War began at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, and it would greatly alter the course of Andrew's life. 1779, at the Battle of Stono Ferry, geez, at the Battle of Stono Ferry on June 20th, uh, fought near Charleston, South Carolina, Andrew's older brother Hugh died from heat exhaustion after being captured by the British. He was only 16. And on May 29, 1780, a loyalist force led by British officer uh, Bannister Tarleton attacked during the Battle of Waxhaus. The Continental Army resisting Tarleton was led by Abraham Buford, who refused an initial demand to surrender. However, after being attacked by Tarleton's cavalry, uh, many of Buford's men surrendered their arms. But during the truce, Tarleton was shot and uh, shot at, and Tarleton's horse fell and crushed him beneath it. Outraged, the loyalists began killing the Continental soldiers, including men who had surrendered. Of the 400 Continentals, 113 were killed with swords, 150 or so badly injured, 53 taken prisoners. Tarleton's quarter became a common expression for refusing to take prisoners. Uh, this event having taken place in the Waxhaus is very likely that a few of Andrew's relatives and friends were killed. Between this and Hugh's death a few months earlier, Andrew is, is angry at the British and ready to join the Revolutionary War even though he's only 13 years old. This kind of stuff is why I hate the phrase, oh, kids grow up so fast these days. As if kids are growing up so much faster than they ever have. Uh, no, they're not. One generation may grow up a little, you know, faster in some ways than the, than the generation immediately preceding it. But overall, uh, kids growing up way slower than they used to. Kids had families with a couple kids of their own. We're running fucking rugged homesteads by the time they were 18 back in Jackson's time. Kids were fighting in wars at 13. But you think your 13-year-old is growing up too fast? He smoked some weed? Get the fuck out of here. Has he stabbed a British soldier with a musket bayonet? No. Well, they've probably got some kids still in him. Probably comparatively pretty innocent to the sometimes awful ways of the adult world. Uh, Betty Jackson encouraged Andrew and Andrew's older brother, Robert, to attend local militia drills in 1780. If they were going to fight, she couldn't stop them. Better learn how to fight properly. Those hillbilly boys of hers were to enter that war. They might as well be trained. Uh, the boys were quickly employed as militia couriers. They both served under Colonel William Richardson Davy at the Battle of Hanging Rock on August 6, 1780. 
This battle is a major turning point uh, for America in this war. Since the beginning of the Revolutionary War, the British had followed a Southern strategy to regain control of Savannah and Charleston and recruit loyalists in those areas to help the British cause and then take the northern eastern uh, seaboard. In order to do this, they made outposts or forts, and one of them was at Hanging Rock in present-day Lancaster County. In this battle, Major Camden, who was in charge of the British forces, surrendered his command to a junior officer, and the Americans quickly took the upper hand. In the end, the British lost 192 soldiers, and the Americans lost 53. The British originally had 1,400. The Americans just 800. This victory is where Andrew would get his love for war. He'll later become the battle, or excuse me, he'll later become the hero of the Battle of 1812. Uh, or excuse me, here in the Battle of 1815. Uh, God dang it, the War of 1812. What the hell's going on here? Uh, he also gains, a, gains an extreme hatred for, for Britain again in these early battles. 1781, not a good year for the Jackson clan. The British capture Andrew and Robert. When Andrew refuses to clean the boots of a British officer after being captured, the officer slashes his face with a sword, leaving scars. Uh, I guess his head rather than face. Scar, but left him scars on his left hand and his head that would remain for the rest of his life. Uh, his brother Robert also refused to do the same. Those Jackson boys, man, tough as nails. Redneck hillbillies. They don't get taken down easily or quietly. While the two boys are being held prisoners, they both come down with smallpox and nearly starve to death. Uh, if, you're, if you're keeping up, uh, Andrew's 14 years old now. Smallpox, not as bad as cholera. Not going to McGill's pop off your butthole, but could kill you just the same. Following an incubation period of a week to two and a half weeks, you come down with a sudden onset of flu-like symptoms. They can include fever, headaches, severe fatigue, severe back pain, overall discomfort, occasionally vomiting. And then a few days after, uh, the pox part kicks in. This is when the real fun starts. Little red spots first appear on your face, hand, and forearms, and then on your torso. Uh, if you're a woman, this is where you could also get some tit pox. Uh, you get some pox in your tits. If you're a dude, this is, uh, this is where you get some dick pox. Although a lot of historical accounts don't get into that. You can also possibly get some ball pox. Maybe some vag pox for the ladies. Within a day or two, many of these legions turn into small blisters filled with clear fluid. And that turns into pus. Scabs begin to form eight to nine days later, eventually fall off, leaving deep, pitted scars. Right, so now you got a kind of a waffly texture to your dick or, or your boobs. Lesions also develop in the mucous membranes of your nose and mouth, quickly turn into sores that break open. Ugh. If you want to lose your appetite today and also have uh, uh, your heart break a little bit, do a Google image search for smallpox victims. Dear God. The amount of uh, pox varies wildly from victim to victim, and there are photos of people who don't even look human. They're covered in so many pox. And the disease would wreak havoc on your immune system, cause heart failure, a variety of other fatal conditions. The fat fatality rate uh, in you know, pre-colonial, colonial America is about 70%. Later in 1781, Betty Jackson pleads for her son's release. They're permitted to return home with her. She and the boys travel backward towards their home in Waxhaus about, uh, or Waxhaus, about 40 miles from where they were held prisoner. Both Andrew and Robert, emaciated, sick, but since Robert was much worse off, Robert rode on the only horse they had. Andrew walked behind him. The last two hours of their journey began to rain heavily, which uh, caused their smallpox to worsen. And then within two days of arriving home, the disease would kill Robert. Uh, if you look into genealogical records, the official cause of death for Robert was listed as dickpox. We are gathered here today to pay our last respects for Robert Jackson, taken far too soon from this earth. He survived battle. Only to be taken by the pox. It looked as if the Lord would spare him. But then the pox spread to his dick and balls, especially his dick. It was the dick pox that would ultimately spell his undoing. In the end, his dick was more pox than dick. 
It was hard to tell where the puck stopped and the dick began. Now turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter six. Uh, no, that's terrible. But he had a, but he had been dead a long time, and uh, or he has been dead a long time. Excuse me. <laughs> And it's a small side character in today's tale, so it seems acceptable to me to make that joke. Uh, after poor Betty nurses Andrew back to health, her other son's dead now, right? She's lost two out of three sons. Her husband has also died, you know, since coming to America. Now she volunteers to nurse American prisoners of war who are infected with cholera aboard two British ships off the coast of Charleston back to health. And then in November, she dies after being infected and is buried in an unmarked grave. Cholera! McGill's pop! Damn it! That's a fate worse than titpox. Andrew now is an orphan at the age of 14, blames the British for the loss of his brothers and his mother. Man, I truly can't imagine what it would feel like to have that heart of a childhood. You lose your dad before you're born. You know, you're grown up in what I imagine is probably a very close-knit family with your mother and your two brothers. Then your oldest brother dies when you're only 12. And then you watch your uh, only other brother die of smallpox when you're just 14. Just you and Ma now. And then you watch her die of cholera while you're still grieving the loss of your brother. And now just you alone in the world. A world full of constant battle and disease, fighting with various American Indian tribes when you're not fighting the British. And you're a redneck. You're a hillbilly. You're not a slave, but you're on the bottom of the white man totem pole, looked down upon by all the other non-redneck, non-hillbilly, non-Scot Irish immigrants. That's the life of a future president, the life of young Andrew Jackson. For the remainder of 1781 throughout 1782 into 1783, as the Revolutionary War winds down and comes to a close, Young Andrew bounces around living with various extended family members he generally isn't on good terms with. He was a hothead, probably getting a lot of, yeah, around the actual town of uh, uh, Waxhaw, North Carolina. He goes to school off and on, helps teach school actually a little bit, uh, works a bit as a saddle maker, amongst other odd jobs. And, and before we enter the next phase of his life, let's take a second to talk about our, our first sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Audible. Audible is introducing Audible Originals, a new Audible member. Audible Originals are exclusive audio titles created by a celebrated storyteller from, from worlds as diverse as theater, journalism, literature, and more every month. Audible members get one credit for any audiobook plus two Audible Originals from a changing selection that you can't get anywhere else. More, more, more. We like more here on Time Suck. You also get access to audio fitness and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your fall with more stories like Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, the battle that shaped America's destiny by Brian Kilmeade and Don Yeager. Good luck finding a higher rated book anywhere on the web about anything. Brad Thor, author of Use of Force, says riveting history that reads like a stay up all night thriller. Don't miss this book. And even better, you don't have to read it with Audible. Audible reads it for you. Be a bookworm uh, with none of the eye strain. Listening with Audible lets you uh, get more books into your life because with the free Audible app, you can enjoy them anytime, anywhere. Just download them. So get your first audiobook free and choose two titles from a curated list of Audible originals when you try Audible for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash timesuck with Dan Cummins or text timesuck with Dan Cummins to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash time suck with Dan Cummins or text time suck with Dan Cummins to 500-500. Link also in the episode description. Make it super easy and a sponsor button that takes you straight to this deal included in the Time Suck app. Now, back to 1784. 1784, 17-year-old Andrew leaves for Waxhaus or he leaves the Waxhaus for Salisbury, North Carolina, just over 40 miles northeast of Charlotte, around 35,000 people now. Founded in 1753, it was the county seat for Rowan County. It was the economic and legal epicenter of the area. 
Jackson studies law under attorney Spruce McKay. Oh, Spruce. That's a hillbilly redneck attorney name right there. You need some lawyering, you get yourself a whole old spruce. Spruce done sprung me from he's of trouble more times than I can count. And I can count to six, if you're curious. One, two, three, five, six. Uh, various other local lawyers help young Andrew learn the ins and outs of the law. And 20-year-old Andrew eventually qualifies for the bar examination in September of 1787. Education is so different back then. No college degree needed for lawyering. An apprentice-type system worked just fine. Uh, I do like how for certain trades, it was more straightforward back then. No jumping through financial hoops. You know, no no jumping through a bunch of financial aid bullshit. Spending X amount of years studying something. You know, paying through the nose just to, just to study that thing for that amount of time. Just, can you pass the test to do this job? Yes? Well, then you get the job. I'll let, I'll let Spruce know there's a new law dog in town. If you can do the job, you get the job. Sadly, the, uh, the insane cost of higher education, I feel like, destroys that opportunity for a lot of people now. Uh, after passing the bar, a friend helps get Andrew appointed to a prosecutor position in the Western District of North Carolina, an area that would later become part of the state of Tennessee. Shortly after arriving in the little Appalachian town of Jonesboro in 1788, Andrew fights in his first duel with a fellow lawyer named Waitstill Avery. Waitstill, not a hillbilly name. That's, a, that's an old money name if there ever, ever was one. Uh, Jackson had actually been arguing against Avery in civil court. During the trial, Avery, a more experienced lawyer, and also a Revolutionary War veteran who outmatched Jackson considerably in the courtroom, took one of Jackson's arguments, turned it around on him so forcefully that Jackson felt he had been intellectually insulted. Seeking revenge against Avery, who would often proclaim, I refer to Bacon, meaning Francis Bacon's noted text, The Elements of the Common Laws of England, when making a point, Jackson replaced a copy of the text with an actual slab of bacon and one of Avery's saddlebags. Ah, guessing he smiled himself silly after doing that. Uh, when Avery criticized Jackson for pulling such a childish prank the next day in court, young Jackson leapt to his feet and yelled, I may not know as much law as there is in Bacon's abridgment, but I know enough not to take illegal fees. And then Avery shot back, it's false as hell, which I guess is fancy rich man, uh, rich man's uh, speak for, that's bullshit. Uh, Jackson issued a challenge to a duel by immediately writing, in, uh, writing it in a page of an old law book, tearing out the page, handing it to Avery. The senior lawyer at first didn't take the challenge seriously. Then the next day, though, at court, challenged, uh, Jackson challenged him again. And a time and place were set for the two to duel later that evening. And shit is on. Duels, man. Legal back then. You could legally challenge someone to a shootout. Let's, let's have a quick lesson on how these duels worked. Reasons for dueling uh, during this time were largely based on honor. People challenged each other to duels when they felt their honor was at stake or their reputation was threatened. So, so really, you could basically duel uh, anybody for any reason. You can just make up some excuse, you know, to shoot some dude who you just didn't care for. I challenged Buck Reginald Owens to a duel. He clearly took a disrespectful amount of time ordering his meal last Tuesday Eve at the tavern to intentionally ruin my wife and I's supper. Elizabeth was furious. He is a scoundrel and a scallywag and a buffoon and a ruffian and a twinkle dinker, the turkey nibbler and a poppy slapper and a bottle bumper. He will pay for his insult with his life. Tomorrow at high noon. Uh, people just didn't take like 10 paces, turn around and shoot as quickly as possible, most of these duels. Uh, most of the time, they would stand facing each other at an agreed-upon distance, which traditionally was at least 10 yards away, and they would fire their gun in the air uh, or purposely miss their opponent most of the time, making the duel more or less just about a test of courage. Although sometimes it was agreed upon that they would, you know, in fact, be shooting directly at one another, attempting to kill each other. Also, the pistols uh, being used by Jackson and others at this time only fired one shot. This wasn't Wild West six-shooter rapid-firing duels. This was flintlock, one-and-done pistols. Uh, 
If both parties missed and the challenger was satisfied, the duel was declared over. However, if the challenger was unsatisfied, the duel continued up until three shots apiece. But generally, no more than three exchanges of fire were allowed, as to exchange more shots than that was considered barbaric. We'll shoot at each other, Buck Reginald, but not all day. We are not savages. Uh, people involved in duels also chose seconds. The seconds were people who would accompany them to the duel to bear witness to what happened and make sure it was all done legitimately. Unclear exactly how many duels Andrew Jackson took part in, but the number of duels uh, attributed to him estimated to be anywhere between 10 and 100. Also unknown is how many Jackson duels ended with both parties showing up to the agreed location and deciding not to fire their weapons at each other compared to duels to the death. So back to this 21-year-old Andrew's first duel with Wait Still Avery in 1788. During the trial, right, uh, this, this whole insult happens. You know, they, uh, they, they, they get out there. And uh, by the time the two, you know, met in the place where they were to duel, uh, Jackson had cooled down a little bit. The seconds of both men then assured each of them that their honor would remain intact if they chose not to shoot one another. And that's exactly what happened. Each man fired a single shot into the air. Jackson and Avery considered themselves satisfied without bloodshed. And according to Avery's son, they remained on friendly terms afterwards. So basically, when you agree to the duel, you don't know what kind it's going to be. Might be to the death. And I guess that's where the courage part comes in. That's why it's still courageous, even though they just shot their pistols up in the air. Right. Uh, now it's courageous just to just to just to show up for the duel, and then after you've showed up, you know, if the seconds talk it over and get both men to agree that they're still honorable if they don't shoot at each other, you get to fire your pistols in the air and then you get to shake and be friends. How much would it suck, you know, if you're like, yes, I, I find that agreeable. We've both proven that we're men of honor by showing up here today, and now we can both return home to our families with our conscience clean. And the other guy's like, it's false as hell. You will die today, Cummins. We fight to the death. Ah, shit. Uh, Andrew moves to the tiny frontier town of Nashville in late 1788. I've heard of it. I've been there. Not really a tiny frontier town uh, anymore now. Uh, it has a metro population around 2 million. Young Jackson lived in Nashville as a boarder in the home of Rachel Stockley Donaldson and quickly became acquainted with his landlady's daughter, Rachel Donaldson Robarts. When they met, young Rachel, just three months younger than Andrew, was in an unhappy marriage with Captain Lewis Robarts a man prone to fits of jealous rage. Fits of jealous rage. Never a fun look. So what do you love most about your husband? Um, I'd have to say his fits of jealous rage. I, I love it when he calls me a whore because some man I've never seen before says hi to me at the bank. Or when he punches a hole in the wall and won't talk to me for three days because we ran into some guy I dated once in high school when we were having our own date night at the movies. So fun. So hot, that jealous rage. Uh, Rachel was described as a very beautiful young woman, described by contemporaries having lustrous black eyes, dark glossy hair, full red lips, brunette complexion, and a sweet oval face rippling with smiles and dimples. Totes adorb. Totes adorb. Uh, Rachel and her husband, Captain Lewis Robard, separated in 1790. She and Andrew married soon afterwards, even though the divorce from her first marriage had not been made legally final. Scandal. The scandal would lead Andrew into more dueling down the road to defend his bride's honor. Uh, 1791, Andrew becomes attorney general for the territory of Tennessee with the help of William Blount, uh, who's an extremely powerful man in the territory who had taken young Jackson under his wing. Andrew isn't sitting around feeling sorry for himself for having his entire family die by the age of 14. He's out there kicking ass and making shit happen. It's, it's pretty inspiring. Uh, Rachel's divorce from her first husband is made final in 1794, after which Andrew and Rachel marry again, this time legally. Before the petition for divorce from Robards was ever, uh, you know, made, Rachel was living with Andrew 
and referred to herself as Mrs. Jackson, which was generally considered okay on the frontier, where relationships were dissolved and formed and formed unofficially as long as the community recognized them. Just hillbilly weddings. Don't need no paper know how. This here union is right in the eyes of redneck law. In the eyes of the two close together, the the BD two close together, the eyes of redneck matrimony, you man and wife. Yeah, yeah, you never save from air banjos now, time suckers. Not ever. Because I'm just going to keep taking those air banjos to the time suck streets. Taking it to the street, 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 taking it to You just got triple M'd. Holy shit. You just got piney songed, air banjoed. And triple M'd, the unholy trifecta of the suck. Hell is Fina. About hurt my throat on that last one. 1794, new husband, Andrew Jackson, partners with a fellow lawyer named John Overton. And, uh, and the two deal with claims for land reserved by treaty for the Cherokee and Chickasaw peoples. Uh, there were so many claims because of an act that had been made in 1783, which briefly allowed states residents to claim Indian lands west of the Appalachians within North Carolina, that it was hard to determine uh, what belonged to who in the eyes of Johnny Law? Basically, the laws were constantly changing and or being ignored. Uh, no one knows what's going on. And everyone wants land. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1796, Andrew wins an election to be a delegate to the Tennessee Constitutional Convention. Uh, all states that wanted to be admitted to the union had to have a constitution, thus the need for a constitutional convention. And then on June 1st, 1796, Tennessee becomes 16th state admitted to the U.S. of A., uh, this is good for Andrew's political career because now Andrew is elected as the only representative for Tennessee in the House of Representatives. He becomes a member of the Democratic-Republican Party, which was the dominant party in Tennessee at the time. Now, the Democratic-Republican Party was formed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, future presidents, number three and four, and their party opposed the centralizing policies of the Federalist Party, which was founded and run by founding father Alexander Hamilton, a man who also uh, founded the Coast Guard and the New York Post. So even though he was never president, he did all right. He got by. Actually, uh, Hamilton may have become president if he hadn't been shot and killed in a duel in 1804. Duels, man. So many duels. Like an Aaron Burr got him. Uh, basically, the Democratic-Republican uh, Party was against a centralized bank because it was claimed that a centralized bank under a head of state was essentially a return to a monarchy. Uh, in 1794-1795, the party also favored trading with France, which they saw as more democratic after the French Revolution instead of the British. The Federalists, by contrast, wanted to trade with Britain because it was more stable than France, and they already had well-established trade with Britain. Uh, Jackson quickly became part of the more radical pro-French side of the party. He strongly opposed the Jay Treaty, which, effective in 1796, aimed to relieve post-war tension by providing for 10 years of peaceful trade between the U.S. and Britain. He was a strong critic of First President George Washington. He claimed that Washington was removing fellow, fellow Republicans from office. Washington claimed to not have or favor a party, even though his Secretary of Treasury was Alexander Hamilton, who was the head of the Federalist Party. Uh, Jackson was young, idealistic, and believed that the government was a place where a bunch of people were getting together despite differences of opinion to find the best solution for the country and not just simply advance their own agendas. Uh, 1797, Jackson is elected as a U.S. Senator from Tennessee, uh, but the job ultimately proves unsatisfying to him, and he uh, rarely takes part in debates. He was he was disgusted with the administration of President John Adams, Federalist, and he ultimately resigned the following year without explanation. Returns home to Nashville, and with strong support from Western Tennessee, he's elected to serve as a judge on the Tennessee Supreme Court. With an annual salary of $600, which sounds terrible, 
But when you factor in inflation, that's 12K a year, which is uh, also terrible. Damn it. I'm guessing the spending power of $600 in 1797, maybe more than 12,000 now. Uh, Jackson also won the appointment of judge advocate of the Tennessee militia. You know, it's not like he can just kick back and live on that Tennessee Supreme Court money. And then in 1802, he runs for general commander of the Tennessee militia, a position voted on by the officers. Originally a tie between him and someone named John Sevier, a popular Revolutionary War veteran and former governor, uh, who was the leader of politics in eastern Tennessee. But ultimately, the governor, Archibald Rowan, broke the tie and appointed Jackson. He's climbing the ranks, probably sneaking in some duels, lost to history as well. And then in his various judge positions, Andrew earned a reputation for good decisions for being honest. But then he resigned the position in 1804. And he said, man, he doesn't like a job. He's just fucking out. His official reason was ill health, but it's possible he left because they just weren't paying him enough. And he wanted to concentrate full time on his business ventures, which were not doing well at the time. While this judge and militia leading business had been going on, uh, Jackson was also a planter, slave owner, and merchant. In 1803, Jackson builds the first general store in uh, Gallatin, Tennessee, and the next year, he acquires the Hermitage, a 640-acre plantation in Davidson County. Later, he adds 360 acres to the plantation, uh, the primary crop of which was cotton. It begins with nine slaves. By the end of his life, he would have 150. So, you know, damn it, here we are. The issue of slavery. Uh, let's address this quickly, kind of quickly. Andrew Jackson being a slave owner is one of the reasons uh, why many people, including President Obama, pushed for his removal from the $20 bill. Uh, I would push for his removal because the dude hated paper money. He caused a whole financial crisis later by removing paper money from certain financial transactions we'll we'll talk about. Uh, Yes, he was a slave owner. But did you know that one of the very first slave owners in America was a mid-17th century Virginia colonist named Anthony Johnson? Successful tobacco farmer in Maryland, attained great wealth, uh, early landowner when he moved in Virginia, or moved to Virginia, excuse me, where he had indentured servants, one of whom... Uh, an African man named John Casser ended up being ruled uh, an indentured servant for life. That is a slave. It, and that was the first case in Virginia of an African essentially becoming a slave. And John's owner, Anthony, not white. He was African from Angola. How is that not, not more common knowledge? Now, does that justify Africans being exploited in mass uh, later exclusive by an exclusively white uh, you know, plant, plantation-owning population? Fuck no. No, it doesn't. But it does illustrate that slavery was not some evil white man's disease and also that it was, you know, just uh, for lack of a better phrase, the way things were in certain parts of the world at that time, like the American South. And to demonize it now, to me, just feels very morally convenient. Uh, The more history I dive into, the more I hate someone being judged by a moral code that did not exist in the era they lived in, right? Just pulling them completely out of the context that surrounded them. Uh, There's a current temptation by historians uh, slash kind of social justice movements to label everyone who owns slaves as bad people. And I, and I get that it's tempting to want to do that and to prove to everybody, you know, that, you know, you, you know, the slavery is bad, but it's, but it's more complicated than that. And, and, and you know, in the world, in, in some ways, isn't that different now? There are still sweatshops in Indonesia and elsewhere around the world where workers are paid less money than they need to live on. Many of the rich have always made money by exploiting the helpless and the financially trapped. Not saying it's right, not justifying slavery in any way. Just pointing out that to look back and say, how could those monsters treat human beings that way? Feels a little silly when people are are still being treated pretty similarly uh, today in a lot of parts of the world. Hopefully, we meat sacks can someday figure it all out and spare most of humanity, regardless of their ethnicity, uh, suffering through whatever time, you know, they have here on Earth. I hope so. Back to Andrew. Men, women, child slaves owned by Jackson on three sections of the Hermitage Plantation. Slaves lived in extended family units, 
of between five and 10 persons who were quartered in 20 square foot cabins that were made from bricks or logs, which was unusual for the time. Most plantation slaves lived in little more than wood shacks. To help slaves acquire food, Jackson supplied them with guns, knives, and fishing equipment. At times, he paid his slaves with money and coins to trade in local markets. However, now that I've pushed the narrative that Jackson was, you know, kind of just a man of his times, let me flip it a bit. We, we also probably shouldn't take it too easy on Jackson. He, he, he definitely was no champion of slaves' rights. And to some people, uh, you know, to be fair, some people were against it during his lifetime. And he did permit uh, slaves to be whipped if he felt they weren't working hard enough or if they attempted to run away. Uh, Stop the runaway, Andrew Jackson urged in an ad placed in the Tennessee Gazette in October 1804. The future president gave a detailed description saying a mulatto man slave, about 30 uh, years old, six feet and an inch high, stout made and active, talks sensible, stoops in his walk, and has a remarkable large foot, brought across the root of the toes, will pass for a free man. And then he promised anyone who captured this mulatto man slave a reward of $50 plus reasonable expenses paid. Plus $10 extra for every 100 lashes any person will give him to the amount of 300 And the ad was signed Andrew Jackson. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's not good. That, that, that's hard to uh, read good in any era. Hard, hard to contextually justify that, but, but it also doesn't feel out of character from what we learned about the guy. I mean, this is a man known for duels. This is a hard ass. This is a dude who joined the Revolutionary War at 13, lost his whole family, uh, clearly didn't take well to feeling slighted. You know, he'd draw down just about anybody. Didn't take well to feeling deprived of something he felt was his. This is the kind of guy you'd bump into at a bar who would want to try to fight you on the spot because you had disrespected him. Uh, interesting guy to do a suck on, but probably not a cool dude to hang out with and have some beers. You know, maybe he had a serious inferiority complex. Okay, so sorry if I went a little long on the tangent, but I but I, I just do get sick of historical figures being tossed in the fuck that guy pile uh, for doing things that were actually very culturally normal for the times they lived in. Now back to a duel, something we can all get behind, right? Uh, actually, actually, pretty psychotic, uh, but it did happen. In 1806, Jackson gets into what is probably the most notorious duel of his life. This shit is insane. In May of 1806, Charles Dickinson, an attorney who studied under U.S. Chief Justice John Marshall, uh, who, like Jackson, uh, bred and raised horses at the time, publishes an attack on Andrew in the local newspaper saying that Jackson refused to pay a bet that he had made, a horse bet, uh, worth $2,000. Andrew wrote him a challenge to a duel, which was incredibly ballsy considering Dickinson's reputation. Dickinson was considered to be a really, really good shot with a pistol, like the best shot. This dude was a Steph Curry of duels. He'd allegedly already killed 26 men in duels. 26! He's the Green River Killer of duels. He's the Miyamoto Musashi of pistol duels. Can you imagine challenging some dude to a duel who has already killed 26 other men, all brave enough to fight in duels. 26-0 in duels to the fucking death. When you challenge this savage, hot-headed motherfucker, you know you're not going to be shooting pistols in the air. This is win or die. Who in their right mind challenges this dude? No one. But Andrew Jackson, not really in his right mind by most people's mind standards. Uh, he, he was like a, the samurai we studied not long ago, right? Just death before dishonor. Now check this out. This is the craziest part of this to me. Jackson, knowing that he was about to duel an excellent marksman, prepared for the event by wearing an overly large coat to disguise his body's form and to disguise where his heart was located. He also planned on letting Dickinson shoot him first so that he could take his time with aiming and fire a well-placed shot. Do you hear what I'm saying? His plan going into the duel was to get shot first. Getting shot is part of this insane son of a bitch's plan. Holy balls. 
At the dueling ground, Jackson sticks to this plan. Uh, after the order to fire has been given, these two men, facing away from each other, spin around. Dickinson turns first and shoots Jackson in the chest, missing his heart by only an inch. According to witnesses, everyone thought Dickinson had missed because Andrew Jackson just stood there like nothing happened. After getting shot in the chest, Jackson takes his time before he fires, steadies himself, then delivers a bullet into Dickinson's stomach. Dickinson then collapses, taken home where he dies several hours later from his wound. As for Jackson, the bullet that hit him was too close to his heart to perform surgery on. He ended up carrying that bullet inside of him for the rest of his life. A bullet that would frequently cause him health problems, cause him to cough up blood. A uh, little reminder to the duel he fought with Dick Dickinson. That tough son of a bitch would live until the age of 78. He'd carry that bullet and occasionally cough up blood for 39 years. Unreal. Just shrugged off a bullet to the chest. The doctor who attended Jackson after getting shot that day said, I don't see how you stayed on your feet after that wound. To which Jackson responded, I would have stood up long enough to kill him if he had put a bullet in my brain. That is one tough hillbilly. Pretty sure that dude cried poison. That's some redneck tough guy shit. Fucker could have shot my head. I still would have killed him. Would have killed him dead. Anderson's public image, however, does take a hit with this duel. He starts to become viewed as a violent hothead, mostly because he was the violent hothead. And he becomes a bit of a social outcast. He needs to change his image if he wants a future in politics, and he chooses to support former Vice President Aaron Burr, who was extremely popular with his fellow Tennessee residents. Burr, ironically, uh, the man who killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel two years prior in 1804. So I don't know how that works. Somehow to prove he's less of a dueling savage, he spends time with another dueling savage. Uh, Burr stays at Jackson's Hermitage for five days. Burr's intentions for this visit, still not really known, but he seemed to have been planning a military operation to conquer Spanish Florida and Texas. To Jackson and all the frontier people, the prospect was exciting. They had long held bitter feelings towards the Spanish because of territorial disputes. Well, Jackson does his share of the planning by telling the Tennessee militia to be ready to march at a moment's notice. On October 4th, 1806, Jackson writes a letter to his friend James Winchester saying that he is confident that the United States can conquer all of Spanish North America. But there is a slight problem with, with Aaron's plan. On November 10th, 1806, Jackson learns from a captain that Aaron Burr planned on taking New Orleans and the Louisiana Territory of the United States and then incorporating it into a new empire where Burr would rule as emperor. Oh, that's why you wanted my help. Ugh. Jackson writes uh, letters to President Thomas Jefferson warning him about this scheme. In December, President Jefferson issues a proclamation declaring that a treasonous plot is underway in the American West, and Jefferson orders the arrest of the perpetrators. Jackson travels to Richmond, Virginia to testify on Aaron Burr uh, during Burr's treason trial, but the defense team ultimately decides that putting uh, Andrew on the stand is not a good idea for fear that he would become too provocative because he is a hothead. Burr would end up being acquitted uh, due to legal technicalities, even though he was for sure guilty. What an interesting life this guy's already led. Right, fighting at 13, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, gets in duels to the death. He's a lawyer by the time he's 20. He's a congressman before 30, marries a woman who's already married, becomes involved in some strange plot to unknowingly help Aaron Burr form a new empire that's going to compete against the United States. And all this before 40. And we haven't even got to the things he's most known for, becoming a war hero in 1812 and then becoming the seventh president of the United States. So let's jump to 1812 now. It's 1812. Things are not going well between the United States and Britain. Why? Well, the tensions that caused the War of 1812 arose from the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars that took place between 1792 and then uh, and lasted until 1815. During this nearly constant conflict between France and Britain, American interests are injured by each of the two countries' endeavors to block the U.S. from trading with the other country. 
after Jefferson becomes president in 1801, relations with Britain slowly deteriorate. The Royal Navy's use of impressment to keep its shipped, uh, ship excuse me, fully crewed also provoke Americans. Impressment is a fancy word for essentially enslavement. Uh, they would take men from the working classes of England and force them to crew ships against their wills. And then they started taking American men and forced them to do the same. The British would accost American merchant ships to seize alleged Royal Navy deserters and then just carry off uh, just, you know, over the course of time, thousands of U.S. citizens into the British Navy. You get kidnapped, forced to work. And if you didn't feel like working, you know, you could be beat to death and tossed overboard. And President James Madison, he doesn't care for this. So on June 18th, 1812, U.S. Congress declares war against Great Britain. Jackson responds enthusiastically, sending a letter to D.C. offering 2,500 volunteers. Then the Madison administration calls on Jackson, uh, you know, to, to come into military service at the end of 1812. And on January 10, 1813, he leads an army of 2,071 volunteers to New Orleans to defend the region against British and American Indian attacks. Now, Jackson is supposed to serve initially under General Wilkinson. And once Jackson gets to New Orleans, he's ordered by Secretary of War John Armstrong Jr. to turn over his supplies to Wilkinson and dismiss his men in Natchez. But... Jackson doesn't like Wilkinson. He's not a fan. And he doesn't feel like there's proper provisions for his men to be uh, stationed in Natchez. So uh, so he just takes them back. He decides, nah, I'm not going to do this. I don't care what your uh, plan is. It's a dumb plan, and we're out. He decides he's not going to dismiss his men there. And so he just marches them back to Nashville, which was an agonizing march, I guess, for everyone involved. Uh, many were sick. Jackson was paying for them, uh, for their expenses out of his own pocket. Uh, this march is where he got the nickname uh, Old Hickory. Because he was so tough on the march, like the toughness of Hickory Wood. Of course he was. Not sh- not sure how he doesn't get charged for treason with this. I mean, I get why he didn't leave him there if he felt like they didn't have the proper provisions. But the Secretary of War had, had ordered him to leave him there. And he's like, nah, not going to happen. Good luck. Good luck uh, with Wilkinson. I don't care for him. I'm Andrew motherfucking Jackson. And I don't hand over my men to just any old jackass. Uh, the Army arrives back in Nashville about a month later. And then Jackson, uh, you know, he's facing financial ruin until a former aide-de-camp, a military officer, acting as a confidential assistant to a senior officer, a man named Thomas Benton, persuades Secretary Armstrong to order the Army to pay for his expenses. And Jackson would be uh, more than willing, you know, if this payment gets made, to lead his men again uh, when the proper provisions are now supplied. So that all does happen. Then on June 14th, Jackson serves as a second in a duel on behalf of his junior officer, William Carroll, against Jesse Burton, the brother of Thomas. These are getting a little complicated. These guys would survive the duel. So the guy who helps him out, now he's, you know, bearing witness to some other guy trying to shoot that guy's brother. And then in September of 1813, Jackson and his top top cavalry officer, uh, Brigadier General John Coffey, gets into a street brawl with the Benton brothers. Jackson's 46 years old. He's getting into street brawls. Uh, He also gets shot in this brawl. Gets severely wounded uh, by Jesse Benton, who shoots him in the shoulder. What the fuck? This dude's five years older than me. Getting in street brawls and duels. uh, Both sad and inspiring. I just can't imagine coming home with a bullet wound from a street brawl to Kyler Monroe. Dad, what happened to you? Uh, nothing to worry about, kids. I just, uh, look, someone said I was a scoundrel, and I did what I needed to, do, uh, you know, do. And uh, things evolved, as things do, into a street brawl. Uh, you know, fists are flying, and that leads to gunfire, and then I got shot. You know, I'm fine. I've been shot before, and I'll probably get shot again. It's part of life. This whole metal, this whole, <laughs> this whole matter is going to be settled tomorrow with the duel at sunset. Well, Jackson being Jackson... Not about to let a bullet slow him down. He's back to fight in the following month. Back in uh, August, on August 30th, 1813, 
He's, uh, he's back. He's in the war now. A group of uh, Creek Indians called the Red Sticks, so named for the uh, color of their war paint. Uh, excuse me. He's not in the war at this point. We're backtracking a little bit. Back in August, August 30th, 1813, a group of Creek Indians called the Red Sticks, so named for the color of their war paint, perpetrated the Fort Mims massacre. During the massacre, hundreds of white American settlers and non-Red Stick Creeks were slaughtered. The Red Sticks were led by Chiefs Red Eagle and Peter McQueen. And no, I did not make, uh, make up that second name. One of these chiefs' names was really Peter McQueen, and I do find that super funny. You know, just gathered here today are the most powerful chiefs from the seven nations. We have Chief Strong Bison, Chief Red Eagle, Chief Wild Stallion, Chief Scorpion Killer, Chief Runs with Wolverine, Chief Angry Bear, and last but not least, Chief uh, Peter McQueen, Chief, Chief Peter, Chief, Chief Pete. Uh, Chief Pete was a son of a high-status Creek woman and a Scott-Irish fur trader. Another hillbilly. Well, Red Eagle and Pete and their warriors had splintered away from the rest of the Creek con- Confederacy, uh, which wanted peace with the United States. They were allied with Tecumseh, Shawnee chief who had launched Tecumseh's war against the United States and who is now fighting alongside the British, and the resulting conflict became known as the Creek War. Jackson, with 2,500 men, ordered to crush the hostile Indians. He left Nashville to fight them on October 10th. Now we're back up in the timeline. His arm in a sling from getting shot in the shoulder during that duel. Coming to the relief of friendly creeks besieged by Red Sticks, Jackson won a decisive victory at the Battle of Talladega on November 9th. This is the battle that would inspire the screenplay for Talladega Nights starring Will Ferrell. I hope that both of you have sons. Handsome, beautiful, articulate sons who are talented and star athletes and they have their legs taken away. I mean, I pray you know the pain in that hurt. Don't you put that evil on me, Rick Bobby. No. The winter of 1813-1814 was a tough one, and Jackson's army was beset by food shortages and chronic desertions. Jackson decides to join up with the Georgia militia, but from January 22 to 24th, while Jackson's army is on its way to meet up with the Georgia militia, the army and their allies are attacked by the Red Sticks in the battles of Emekfa and Inachapu uh, Creek. Inachopo uh, Creek. Uh, Jackson was outnumbered and forced to withdraw to Fort Struther. At Fort Struther, Jackson picks up more troops. To make up for deserters, his forces now total over 2,000, and he marches his army south to confront the Red Sticks, who they outnumbered two to one. On March 27th, the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, Jackson's forces overwhelm the Red Sticks, and the campaign ends three weeks later with Red Eagle's surrender. Chief Pete and some of his men retreated to Florida. If you're thinking, what about Pete? What about Chief Petey? Then on June 8th, Jackson accepts commission as a brigadier general in the U.S. Army, and then only 10 days later, he's promoted to major general and put in charge of the 7th Military Division when they recognize that he is Andrew motherfucking Jackson. This promotion allows Jackson, with Madison's approval, to create the Treaty of Fort Jackson, which requires the Creek, a.k.a. the Muscogee people, uh, remember many of which are Jackson's allies, to surrender 23 million acres of their land to U.S. settlers. Uh, November of 1814, Jackson is in ill health from having dysentery, uh, dysentery, excuse me, but decides to go after the Spanish and British who were in Florida. Which he didn't, uh, which he did in the short skirmish called the Battle of Pensacola, which he won. Not going to let a little bit of a bullet wound keep him from horsebacking around the country, leading men into battle. Not going to let a bit of dysentery stop him neither. Sir, you don't have, you don't think you, you, you should wait, uh, maybe sit this uh, one out. I mean, you have dysentery. You have dysentery. Get out of my sight, you worthless coward! You think some severe diarrhea and potentially fatal dehydration from extreme dehydration. <laughs> extreme diarrhea, excuse me. Too many words are going to keep you from battle. Boy, you just don't know what tough looks like, dude. Now punch me in the mouth. 
When I smile through the blood, when I grin through the split skin, when my head doesn't flinch, my eyes don't blink, my hands do nothing to stop your blow, then you will know who you are talking to. Now get the fuck out of my tent. I have a battle to plan. And full disclosure, I also have some bloody soup-like excrement to violently discharge from my colon. A few weeks later, Jackson learns that the British are planning an attack on New Orleans, uh, which is on the mouth of the Mississippi and had many strategic and commercial advantages. Jackson leaves Pensacola, uh, stations part of his army in Mobile, Alabama to guard against Spanish and British troops and rushes toward New Orleans where he feasts on crawfish etouffee and beignets and he balloons to 365 pounds. He then uses his new size to his advantage, challenging opponents to wrestling duels instead of pistol duels. He smothers five men to death over the next two months. No, of course not. Uh, Jackson arrives in New Orleans on December 1st, 1814, quickly declares martial law because he fears the Spanish and Creole inhabitants of New Orleans would not be loyal to him. He also makes an alliance with a group of smugglers and creates a large militia that consists of African-Americans, Muscogees, uh, and smugglers. Jackson's force, which also had volunteers from other states and troops from the U.S. Army, approaches the British force of over 10,000 professional soldiers. Jackson only has 5,000 party trained men, but he is Andrew motherfucking Jackson and possibly at least half Highlander. There can be only one, and he's damn near impossible to kill or defeat. Jackson drives the British back with his smaller force on the evening of December 23rd. On January 8th, 1815, the British launch a frontal assault against Jackson, and it is a colossal failure. He kicks the shit out of them. The British had 2,037 casualties, while Jackson's army, 71. Yep. After the battle, the British retreat, hostilities end. Oh, and then they get word uh, uh, back that the Treaty of Ghent had ended the War of 1812 back in December. Whoops. Communication, not quite, uh, you know, what it, what it is now back then. How much of that suck to die in battle days after war had ended? Because it took uh, over a week for your commander to learn that the war was over. Uh, Jackson's victory makes him a national hero, and he is awarded a Congressional Gold Medal on February 27th, 1815. And then he remains in command of Army forces on the southern border of U.S. Uh, of the U.S. following the war. And uh, although he conducts most of his business from his home uh, back in Tennessee, the Hermitage. He also signed treaties with the Cherokee and Chickasaw, gaining parts of Tennessee and Kentucky for the U.S. Then in 1816, General Old Hickory Jackson gets right back to fighting. Troubles are brewing down south. Confederation of American Indian Tribes, known as the Seminole, began raiding settlements in Georgia before retreating back to Florida. This was especially a big problem for white settlers because the Seminole recruited escaped slaves into their forces and had amassed formidable war parties. These conflicts would escalate into what would become known as the First Seminole War. So Jackson leads some troops down into Florida and has them destroy what was known as the Negro Fort in Spanish Florida, where a community of escaped slaves and Seminoles lived in an abandoned British fort built the year before in Spanish territory. Well, the following year, December of 1817, Jackson is ordered by President Monroe to lead a campaign against Seminole and Creek Indians in Georgia, pushing back further. Monroe also tells him to stop Spanish Florida from becoming a safe haven for escaped slaves. Well, Jackson reads his orders and just decides that really the best way to accomplish this is just to take Florida altogether. Just take it from the Spaniards. Just classic Jackson, just up in the ante. And classic Jackson, he doesn't run this idea by the president. He just does it. And before we get into his ass-kicking Florida exploits, let's check in with today's final sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a cool company that also believes that learning shouldn't stop after school. Members of the cult of the curious inside their ranks. You love digging deep into the topics that you find interesting, which is why you will love The Great Courses Plus. I highly recommend checking out The Great Courses Plus lecture on Andrew Jackson and the War of 1812. 
from their fascinating series, American Military History, presented by General Wesley K. Clark. It explores Jackson's military experience as a major general in the War of 1812 and his victory against the British at the Battle of New Orleans, a win that would help make him president. Obviously, we touched on the War of 1812, but with this suck spread out over Andrew's entire life, we couldn't dive you know, that deep into it. This lecture does. This lecture reminded me uh, that a battle from the War of 1812 inspired Francis Scott Key to write the Star-Spangled Banner, that the British burned uh, the still-under-construction White House during this war. There were battles going on all over the place this war with so many points of contact around the U.S. and British-controlled Canadian borders. Uh, You know, it was a huge war, and Andrew Jackson had a pivotal role in helping to end it. With the Great Courses Plus, you will get unlimited access to stream, uh, uh, or, you know, just not just this lecture, but their entire library. Watch or listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. You're going to love the Great Courses Plus, and today they're giving Time Suckers a free trial with unlimited access. Start enjoying their entire library of fascinating lectures for free only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link to this deal in today's episode description and Great Courses Plus button link to the deal in the sponsor section of the Timesuck app and at timesuckpodcast.com. Now, let's jump from 1812 back up to 1818. Jackson invades Florida on March 15, 1818, uh, captures Pensacola, defeating not only Seminole forces in the area, but the Spanish forces as well. Also captures two British spies who have been working with the Seminole and executes them after a mock trial, causing a small diplomatic problem with Britain. At this point, the Monroe administration doesn't know what to do with this crazy asshole. He's gone rogue. He has essentially single-handedly declared war on Spain. I mean, just think about how nuts that is. Spain is still a massive world power. We just got done fighting one of the other world powers, Britain, arguably the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And now Jackson also goes and kills, you know, a couple of their soldiers, a couple of their spies. <laughs> just anyone, you know, has a problem with it, he'll be happy to duel them. Well, a lot of people in Washington, you know, fairly pissed off at Jackson. But, uh, you know, uh, people like the president, you know, pissed off at him. But uh, Jackson is defended by Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, who tells the cabinet that this probably means Spain will want to just sell Florida just to get rid of uh, it, you know, for being too much trouble. And Adams is actually right. Spain does sell, sell Florida to the U.S. They're like, all right, fuck it. We're not, we, don't, we don't want a war. Just take it. We're done. We, we had other stuff in South America we're working on. And uh, so Spain sells Florida to the U.S. in the adams Onus Treaty of 1819. So Jackson kind of won us Florida. So you're welcome, Florida listeners. 1821, Jackson briefly the territorial governor of Florida, but then decides he's not interested in living in Florida before pools, golf courses, and resorts have been built. So he goes back to Tennessee, where the humidity is slightly less oppressive and there are far less alligators. Uh, The following year, 1822, fellow Tennessee judge and plantation owner John Overton approaches Jackson, asks him if he might want to run for president. And then on July 22nd, 1822, the Tennessee legislature nominates Jackson to be candidate in the election of 1824. Jackson quickly gains popular support for his presidential bid based largely on speaking out against the Second National Bank, for which he blamed an, uh, uh, an economic depression on. Or, you know, he, he blamed this bank for an economic depression that occurred in 1819. Uh, the other major candidates for the election are William H. Crawford, current Secretary of the Treasury, big fan of the bank, John Quincy Adams, son of, you know, John Adams, second president, Henry Clay, Speaker of the House of Representatives, representing Kentucky, and Secretary of War John C. Calhoun. And all of these men have something in common. They all really, really dislike the redneck hillbilly war hero known as Andrew Jackson. Uh, Jackson runs on a platform of defending the common people 
in combating corruption. In 1823, Jackson is elected as a Tennessee senator in a move orchestrated by his advisors in order to prevent the incumbent senator, John Williams, a man who opposed Jackson as president, from being reelected. Uh, election is a little bit different back then. Not weird to run for president and then during that uh, you know campaign also run for the Senate. Uh, historically, prior to this election, uh, Congressional Nominating Caucus chose the Democratic-Republican nominee for president. But many politicians backed out of that in 1824 because they, they viewed it as undemocratic. A Pennsylvania convention nominated Jackson for president, uh, saying that the uh, irregular Congressional Caucus ignored the voice of the people. But this voice of the people stuff started to scare the other four candidates. Why? Because thus far, all the politicians had basically been members of immensely powerful, wealthy families. And now you have this ill-bred redneck hillbilly thinking that he can be president. Some some dueling savage, just disgusting riffraff. So to keep Jackson out of office, his other four opponents gang up on him and cut a deal. When the votes are tallied from across the nation, Andrew Jackson wins a plurality of the popular as well as the electoral vote. He got more of the popular vote and more of the electoral vote than any other candidate. Uh, in the Electoral College tabulations, John Quincy Adams came in second, Crawford third, Henry Clay finished fourth. However, the U.S. Constitution dictates that a candidate needs to win a majority of votes in the Electoral College, or electoral college and no one met that criteria because there was too many people running. It was split, the pie was split too many ways. So the election now had to be decided uh, by the House of Representatives. So on February 9th, 1825, the House of Representatives held its election in which each state delegation would get one vote. And who has a lot of influence in the House? Uh, the other presidential candidate and current speaker, Henry Clay. And Clay uses his influence there to get Adams elected in exchange for Adams nominating Clay as Secretary of State, which would set him on a path to the White House himself. As Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, and now Adams, had all been Secretary of State before becoming president. Candidate John C. Calhoun initially failed to be endorsed by his home state of South Carolina, which did go to Andrew Jackson, and he was given the vice presidency. The fourth opposing candidate, William H. Crawford, current Secretary of Treasury, offered that post again. And what was Jackson offered? The leading vote-getter, Jack Squat. And if you think, man, I bet he was pissed. Yeah, you're right. When he finds out how it all went down, he says, so you see the Judas of the West, Henry Clay, has closed the contract and received the 30 pieces of silver. His end will be the same. So he's, he's pissed. Uh, Jackson is nominated for president by the Tennessee uh, legislature in 1825, more than three years before the next election. He's so fired up. He basically waits here and he's like, fuck it, we're running again. We're starting now. This is the earliest nomination of its kind in presidential history. As soon as he lost, uh, Jackson's supporters basically started working on the next, uh, next election. He is not fucking around. He wants vengeance. First, his supporters work on criticizing the Adams presidency. Senator uh, Martin Van Buren, future eighth president, emerges as one of the strongest critics of Adams. Also, Vice President John C. Calhoun uh, becomes an adamant critic of Adams, which is weird, but this happened a lot in the old days because the VP and president were elected separately. So even though they made that deal, they weren't the best of friends, and uh, they had different viewpoints, and the vice president would openly criticize the president. Which is, To me, that seems so uncomfortable. You know, like you're sitting there, you know, reading the reading the uh, you know morning paper about how your vice president thinks you're an incompetent piece of shit, and then you have a briefing with that same person that afternoon. Just, dude, what the fuck? Why would you say a monkey would literally make a better president than me? Because at least a monkey isn't quite smart enough to cause the problems that I do. Oh, ah, that? Hey, listen, I like monkeys. I think they're great. So, really, is a compliment. Okay, I guess so. 
And then the next morning, you just read another headline. President so stupid, he thinks vice president's monkey comments were complimentary. Dude, why? Uh, Jackson supporters established numerous pro-Jackson newspaper and clubs. People are allowed to visit Jackson at the Hermitage, which is unprecedented. And then he just crushes it in the next election. He wins the election of 1828 with 56% of the popular vote and 68% of the electoral vote. This election is significant. And then it effectively ends the era uh, where, where uh, of the Democratic-Republicans kind of party. And Jackson supporters now become the Democratic Party, while Adams supporters become the National Republicans. So this is where it splits into Democrats and Republicans. Uh, this election also particularly dirty. Jackson was accused of executing his own soldiers, being an adulterous bigamist, and even of cannibalism on the battlefield. These accusations come from the Coffin Handbills, a series of pamphlets written by Philadelphia editor John Binns. And it's insane how crazy they got. John Ben's not a big fan of Jackson, wanted Adams to win, took it upon himself to do some mudslinging. Not even modern journalists more interested in ratings than truth would stoop to. Some of the pamphlets took things Jackson's did, uh, Jackson did do, just exaggerated and twisted the truth. Others just outright lies. Uh, the first poster showcased six black coffins at the top of the pamphlet and claimed that Jackson had ordered the execution of six militiamen during the Creek War. Another 12 coffins were displayed further down the page to, uh, to represent regular soldiers and Indians who were put to death under Jackson's command. This refers to the Battle of Horseshoe Bend when Jackson attacked the Red Stick fortification. Roughly 800 of the 1,000 Red Stick warriors were killed in the battle. There was also a drawing of Jackson assaulting and stabbing Samuel Jackson in the streets of Nashville, his face more of an evil Halloween mask than an actual face in the accompanying drawing. Uh, this referred to uh, an actual fight between Andrew and a man named Samuel Jackson, no relation, uh, when Andrew did attack him with his sword. However, he was also later found innocent of assault charges because back then you could legally attack people with swords, you know, like they insulted you or something, I guess. A pamphlet published at a later time accused Jackson of committing adultery with his wife. Uh, Jackson's wife, Rachel, had applied for a divorce from, you know, that previous marriage in 1790. We already talked about that. Jackson would later attribute his wife's death to stress and shame brought on by accusations against her during this campaign. And then things get really crazy. A supplemental account of some of the bloody deeds of General Jackson attributed to Virginia Congressman uh, John Talaferro accused Jackson of atrocious and unnatural acts, such acts including slaughtering 1,000 unarmed Native Americans, taking a nap in the midst of their corpses. That's what this guy wrote that was published, and eating a dozen of them for, (laughs) for breakfast. The author went on to speculate about how Jackson might similarly treat American governors and congressmen were he elected president. Fucking ridiculous. Go ahead, vote for Jackson. If you want him to kill and eat everyone you hold dear for breakfast. Uh, Jackson's supporters got pretty nasty too. They argued that Adams only became the ambassador to Russia because he wanted to frequent whorehouses and served as a personal pimp for Emperor Alexander I, procuring girls to please him. So wee bit of slander going the other direction as well. Uh, back at the Hermitage in Tennessee, Rachel is experiencing immense physical and emotional pain during all of this. She has chest pain, finds it difficult to breathe. After struggling for three days, she dies of a heart attack on December 22nd, 1828, three weeks after Jackson's elected president. Jackson had to be pulled away from her body so the undertaker could prepare the funeral. And then she was buried uh, at the Hermitage on Christmas Eve. Jackson never forgave the people who had accused Rachel of bigamy, convinced that they had caused her death. And then a few weeks later, shortly after his inauguration, Jackson walked into the Democratic press, the paper that published the coffin handbills, found editor John Binns and challenged him to a duel. When Binns refused, 
Andrew slapped him in the face and demanded they fight. When he still refused, Jackson took out a sword he was kind of still prone to carrying, cut him down. He was then briefly charged with murder, but made it very clear he would just pardon himself if the charges were filed against him. Two weeks later, he would gun down John Quincy Adams on Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C. No charges would be filed here either. It was ruled a fair fight. Ten days after that, Jackson walked into Congress, challenged any man who had maligned either himself or his wife to a duel. John Markham, a congressman from Maine, accepted and was shot down just outside the Capitol building. William Mumphrey, a congressman from Delaware, called Jackson a murderer just loud enough for Jackson to hear him when he shot Markham, and Jackson then shot Mumphrey down where he stood. At that point, two men still bleeding on the ground, their bodies still warm. Jackson unzipped his trousers, unsheathed his penis, waved it around and screamed, who wants to suck it? And then Martin Van Buren, future president, yells, if it means it will, it will sate your bloodlust, I will do the deed. And then in front of Congress, future president gets down on his knees and sucks the current president's dick. And now you know the real story of an event most history teachers are afraid to tell you. Mostly because it never happened. But Mrs. Jackson did die, and Andrew was both super sad and angry about it, and I am surprised he didn't kill somebody over this. Uh, March 4th, 1829, Andrew Jackson took the oath of office, became the seventh president, became seventh president of the United States. Jackson's inaugural uh, was the first one to take place in the east portico of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Presidential inaugurations were moved to the west portico in 1981. This site was selected in order to accommodate the thousands of people who had journeyed to Washington, D.C. to witness the inauguration of a murdering hillbilly. Jackson played the part of a Democratic hero. He wore a suit of plain black and no hat. His tall figure, gray hair, made him easily visible to the crowd, somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people. Witness Jackson deliver his inaugural address and take the oath of office. Jackson bowed to the people, a symbolic gesture that was the exact opposite of a monarchy, where the people bowed to the king or queen. And Jackson blamed Adams for Rachel's death, and the former president was not invited to the White House after the inauguration, so Adams didn't intend the inauguration at all. Kind of awkward. Now, Jackson says, thank you all for coming here tonight. I am truly honored. If you'll notice, former President Adams is not here. I assume you know why, but if you don't, it's because that dirty, dealing, cowardly, lying, pompous fuck murdered my wife. If I see him again, I'll run my sword clear through him. Put him on the flame. Have a redneck pot roast. Need him, since I've already been accused of cannibalism. Now, please, enjoy your dinner. On May 26, 1830, Congress passes the Indian Removal Act which sanctioned uh, the forcible re relocation of Creek, Chickasaw, Cherokee, Choctaw, Seminole tribes to lands west of the Mississippi River. Uh, this is what's known as the Trail of Tears after Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act on May 28, 1830. Allows for the president to have additional powers and speed up the removal of the Native American communities, or I guess American Indian communities. And this would go down as the most controversial policy Jackson would enact while in, in office and another reason detractors call for his removal from the $20 bill. Excuse me. I hope to do a full suck on the Trail of Tears one of these days, uh, like slavery, another dark mark in our nation's legacy. Uh, this act said that no state could achieve proper culture, civilization, and progress as long as Indians remained within its boundaries. Uh, the U.S. government essentially tricked the Cherokee people. Some Cherokee signed a treaty called the Treaty of New Dakota, uh, conceding to removal, but the Cherokee that signed were not recognized by the larger group as leaders. The Cherokee were given two years to migrate voluntarily, at the end of which time they would be forcibly removed. By 1838, only 2,000 migrated, 16,000 remained on their land. The U.S. government then sent in 7,000 troops who forced the Cherokees into stockades at Bayonet Point. They were not allowed time to gather their belongings. Most of the deaths from the Trail of Tears came from disease present in the stockades. 
Then they began the march known as the Trail of Tears, in which 4,000 Cherokee people died of cold, hunger, and disease on their way to western lands. Uh, the Cherokee were transferred to departure points at Ross's Landing, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Gunter's Landing, Guntersville, Alabama, on the Tennessee River. And at Fort Cass, Charleston, Tennessee, near the Cherokee Agency on Hiawassee River, Calhoun, Tennessee. Uh, from there, they were sent to Indian Territory, mostly traveling on foot or by some combination of horse, wagon, and boat, a distance of around 1,200 miles along one of three routes. By 1837, the Jackson administration had removed 46,000 American Indian people from their land east of the Mississippi, had secured treaties, which led to the removal of a slightly larger number of American Indians. Most members of the five southeastern nations had been relocated west, opening 25 million acres of land to white settlement and to slavery. And incredibly, a lot of people, uh, you know, um, claim that, that none of that even happened. I guess. I guess there are actual – I had a hard time finding uh, specific examples. I was told by my researcher that uh, there are a fair amount of people out there on the web who don't think the Trail of Tears uh, even happened. I guess there are Trail of Tear deniers. Why not? There's Holocaust deniers. There's American slavery deniers. Uh, people who deny anything they haven't seen with their own two eyes. And, and there's people saying a lot of other stupid shit on today's Idiots of the Internet. Under a video called The Trail of Tears National Historic Trail, uh, posted by NTIRNPS, they call themselves a family channel, this channel, and they state that we do not allow graphic, obscene, explicit, or racial comments uh, on submissions. But somehow, the following comment from the Wilson 565 has been left uh, up for two years. Saying, uh, uh, I can't watch this for more than a few moments. I get so angry, I can't stand it. The president, the MF president of the U.S. ordered the people off their own land. They were driven like animals for miles only to end up on a useless piece of useless land. This is what the white man is really like. Evil devils. And then user uh, Juanes, fucking something. I swear just people just fucking mash their keyboard when they come up with their usernames. They're just like, ah, fucking these seven letters is my username. Uh, user one is a bunch of fucking nonsense. Uh, notices what I do, that racism against uh, white men is, you know, still still racism. And posts, that seems slightly racist to me. Uh-huh. It does seem that way to me as well. Uh, then user Windstorm1000 commits a huge pet peeve of mine, posting, if Georgia wanted to give back some of its land free to the Cherokee Nation, ancient wrongs might be righted. I hate the let's give the land back argument in all forms uh, when the generation who owns the land is not the generation who took the land. How well has that policy worked out for the Israeli-Palestinian uh, situation? Uh, not great, unless you think never-ending violence is pretty great. Just such an easy, <laughs> like, virtue signaling, I guess. Give them their land back. That's a sweet thought. It's a noble thought. Uh, until it's your land. No one who either has worked to buy land or inherited land, you know, that's been there, there's like their whole life, just gives it to someone who used to own it because it's like, you know, this, you know, moral, moral thing to do. Unless they do so in, in, a, in like their will, maybe, when they're going to be dead and they can't use it anymore or or they or they can financially handle doing so, maybe, I guess, in some, maybe there's just a few examples of that. Everyone else needs their fucking land and isn't willing to part from what they purchase. And at the end of the day, none of the earth's land belongs in any sacred sense to any of us. It's all been claimed by someone you know, and then given enough time, someone else, you know, takes it away. You know, most of it has just changed hands so many times over the years. You know, the whole concept of true ownership is pretty ludicrous. You know, the land of the U.S. only belonged to the American Indians for as long as they could fight everyone else off from taking it. 
You know, and if the world lasts long enough, someone will eventually take this shit from us. I'm not longing for that to happen. I hope it's going to happen. But, you know, all of the world's empires have all had one thing in common. Eventually, they crumble. And someone else rises out of the ashes, comes along, makes up some more rules, you know, divvies up the land for some other people. You know, some alien civilization could land on Earth months from now and start fucking us up with advanced weapons we can't even compete with. Take everything we want, completely eradicate the concept of ownership for the entire planet. No one is giving anything back ever, Windstorm. That's not the world we live in. Uh, finally, user Linda Poole lets her emotions get the best of her. She posts, I get angry when I see President Donald J. Trump standing by President Andrew Jackson's framed photo in the White House. I imagine President Jackson is burning in hell right now. And the entire Georgia militia and the United States senators who did this to the Cherokee tribe and other tribes. And there is still more room in hell for others living today at their death because hell is surely real. Wow, a lot of hell talk, Linda. You bet, sure. Andrew Jackson's just burning in hell. He's just nothing but an evil piece of shit for signing a document that Congress passed with a majority approval. George Washington, he's probably down there. Teddy Roosevelt, they're down there. Thomas Jefferson's down there. Every person who did some great things but also did terrible things are all burning in hell. Plenty of room, as you said. Every person, you know, had anything to do with slavery or American expansionism at the expense of American, you know, or, uh, you know, colonialism. Anyone who had anything to do with British imperialism or, or Spanish, French, Portuguese, Dutch, and so many other, you know, uh, national, you know, conquests. Every person who, who, who never fought actively for, for women, every person of every race and culture to have the exact same rights. Every, every person who ever hated another race or culture of, of other people. Basically, 99.99% of every human uh, who ever lived, of the human population, just historically, all evil pieces of shit. But not you, Linda Harrison, not you. You're going straight to heaven because you're the best. You're the best around. I'll think about how great you are when I visit the Linda Harrison Museum after, uh, you know, spitting on that nasty old Andrew Jackson Museum. Oh, wait, there isn't a Linda Harrison Museum. I wonder why. Maybe it's because you're just another dirtbag. Only focus on the mistakes of, uh, of other people who accomplished, you know, far greater things than your pea brain is even remotely able to comprehend. You're just another watcher critiquing another doer. How easy that must be. Who gives a shit that he was a bona fide war hero, right? Who cares that he helped the U.S. from falling back into British possession? Who cares that he was a successful two-term president or that he loved his wife so much he had to be pried from her corpse? No, no, no. Let's just reduce him only to a man who didn't care for the rights of American Indians during a time when that was sadly uh, the norm for U.S. politicians. Did you know that American Indian tribes attacked the community he lived in as a child? Did you, did you realize that the U.S. and various tribes routinely attacked each other? That they were at war? Various tribes sided with the British in the War of 1812, the war he risked his life to fight in. It wasn't all good guys on one side and bad guys on the other, old black and white thinker, Linda. How nice it must be to, to live life in such simple terms in your brain. Just good guys and bad guys. You know, it's, it's never like that. One nation's war hero, always another nation's villain. Would you, uh, would you fight like Jackson did for something you believe in, Linda? Maybe get out there, duel for your honor? I bet not. And stop with the hell shit, dummy. That's tired. Come on, give it a give it a rest. Give the fire and brimstone a rest. It's annoying. It's not your place to judge, Linda. Read your own book. And then when you're done with that, read a whole shit ton of other books. Learn that blood is spilled by the good and the wicked alike in war and conquest and the, the good and wicked are often the same. Not car cartoonishly good or cartoonishly evil people. Just regular, you know, gray meat sacks. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. And stop being an idiot of the internet. Okay, I got a full idiot disclosure of myself right now. If uh, This might sound fine, but 
if it does sound uh, a little off today, my mush mouth is a little higher gear because my my body and mind are destroyed. I went on a hiking trip with my son over the weekend, and it fucking almost killed me. I agreed to it a couple years ago. The mountain didn't seem as big as it actually was when I agreed to it, and then I didn't prep at all. Just a jackass. Just thinking like, yeah, who cares that I'm 41? I'll just fucking... Who cares that I've never uh, hiked ever with a, uh, a 40, 50-pound pack on my back? Whatever. Just do it. You just get out there and do it. Who cares I don't have hiking shoes? Just put on some old sneakers. Get out there. And uh, <laughs> I literally crawled on my hands and knees the last 100 yards of, of the climb to get up there. I, I don't know if my legs have ever been so sore. I feel like I've been beaten. I feel like Andrew Jackson has beaten me. Um, maybe it doesn't sound that bad. Maybe it's just in my head. But I'm just like, man, I'm just beat to shit right now. So I'm just, I'm, I'm noticing my, my mush mouth more, maybe just because every time I'm trying to, as I record, trying to lean in a certain way, and it's like every part of my body is sore. Uh, it's hard to get even comfortable sitting down. But I'm going to, but I'm going to power, you know what? If Andrew Jackson was here right now, he'd fucking slap me out of my chair. And he, he'd, he'd just sit down and just do the podcast himself. He'd slap me out of his chair, tell me to punch him. I wouldn't, then he'd slap me again, then I would punch him, and then he'd just sit here and just speak through the blood. And then afterwards, he'd be like, that's how you do it, you baby. Anyway, I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. July 10th, 1832. Evilest human ever. Andrew definitely burning in hell the most, Jackson. <laughs> right, Linda? Vetoes a bill that would have extended the life of the Second Bank of the United States. Henry Clay is running against Jackson in the election of 1832 and proposed the bill in order to redirect focus to the bank in the upcoming election. The Second Bank of the U.S. Uh, created in the aftermath of the War of 1812 had been controversial throughout its life. Many people blamed the bank for the Panic of 1819. Westerners and Southerners felt that the bank in general and its lending policies favored Northern interests. At the end of 1831, Senators Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, supporters of the bank, convinced the bank's president, Nicholas Biddle, to submit an early petition for the renewal of the bank's charter to Congress, thinking that Jackson wouldn't dare veto it and make the bank an issue in the election. Jackson says the bank isn't constitutional, argues extensively that the bank was not uh, constitutional, and that it was neither necessary nor proper for the federal government to authorize and permit the existence of an institution so big and so powerful that only directed uh, uh, a privileged few, and he does veto the shit out of it, which is significant because only a few presidents had used the veto a very small number of times before. Uh, and also the Supreme Court had said that the bank was constitutional, but, ja- but Jackson then directly challenged that. Jackson said of the bank, the bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. <laughs> He was a fighter, man. November of 1832, uh, Jackson wins re-election by defeating Henry Clay with 219 electoral votes to Clay's 49. Landslide. Suck it, Clay. That's got to feel good, man. Getting re-elected to the presidency, I would think, feels even better than getting uh, elected the first time. Like, when you get elected the first time, you're getting elected because people think you will do a great job. When you get re-elected, people are voting for you because they think that you have done a good job. And then to win your re-election in a landslide? King of the world. When those voting results come in. Uh, on December 10th, 1832, Jackson issues the Nullification Proclamation, which affirms that states and municipalities are forbidden from nullifying federal laws. He threatens to enforce this with the use of federal troops. Se- Senator Henry Clay proposes the Compromise Tariff, which decreases the tariff rates every year until its elimination in 1842. It's accepted by Congress in South Carolina. South Carolina, the first state that would end up seceding in 1861, already asserting its right to disobey the federal government when it chooses. So Jackson's proclamation and Clay's tariff, uh, these combined are sowing the seeds for the Civil War to occur a few decades later. Fucking Clay, man. Why couldn't he just go away when Jackson whooped his ass in that re-election? Jackson also passes the force bill on March 1st, 1833, which allows him to use 
the army to enforce federal law. Gave a, gave a lot of power to the federal government, that, that Andrew Jackson. Uh, May 6, 1833, Jackson sails to Fredericksburg, Virginia. During a stopover in Alexandria, Robert B. Randolph, whose dismissal from the Navy for embezzlement Jackson had ordered, appears and strikes the president, like assaults him, like punches him. First, this is the first time someone had tried to physically assault the president. Well, some men travel to Jackson, run this dude down, tackle him, and then he and Jackson have words and apparently, you know, uh, air out their grievances and uh, get over it because then Jackson doesn't press charges. I guess plenty of people before Linda did not care for Jackson. December of 1834, Jackson terminates the national debt. This is big. This is the only time that the United States was entirely debt-free, and it lasted for about a year. When Jackson first took office, the national debt was about $58 million, which is about $1.5 billion in today's dollars. And six years later, all paid off. And then a year after that, we'd head right back into debt, and we've been in, been in debt ever since. Uh, January 30th, 1835, the first attempt at uh, killing a sitting president occurs, assassination attempt, outside the United States Capitol. Coming out of a funeral, Jackson is stopped by a man named Richard Lawrence who aims a pistol at Jackson. The pistol misfires, and Lawrence pulls out a second pistol, which also misfires because it's Andrew motherfucking Jackson Highlander. I guess it was incredibly humid outside, which led to the guns not working uh, properly. (laughs) Well, Jackson then attacks Lawrence with his cane and nearly beats him to death. He has to be pulled off of Lawrence. First time someone tries to murder a U.S. president, of course, it would be Jackson. As you learned today, he's a polarizing dude. And, of course, Jackson, now 68 years old, starts to beat the shit out of somebody with a cane. Still fighting. Still not tolerating bullshit. Uh, July 11th. Uh, I actually wrote July 11th, like ST after 11. That's a fun. July 11th, 1836. Do you remember where you were on July 11th? No, July 11th, Jackson introduces the Special Circular, which says that the government will only accept gold and silver for land payments. This is that thing about him not liking paper money. This act serves as an attempt to check rising inflation due to irresponsible lending. He just thinks people get a little willy-nilly with their paper money. He trusts gold and silver, not paper. And again, that this to me is the best reason to get him off the 20. And I have absolutely nothing against Harry Tubman, by the way, future of the $20 bill. Uh, you know, she's amazing human. Or she was an amazing human and, uh, and a subject of a future suck. Uh, Jackson's anti-paper sentiment doesn't help the country's economy. Uh, it actually causes another panic, the Panic of 1837, which results because many of people, uh, uh, because, you know, a lot of people are unable to repay loans in gold and silver. They can't access gold and silver. The same year, there's also a depression in Great Britain's economy that stops investments made in the U.S. So the U.S.'s national debt increases. The economy goes into a depression. Businesses fail. Unemployment increases tremendously. And uh, Vice President Van Buren actually was ultimately blamed for all this because, I don't know, he was not a cane-wielding war hero, I guess. And then on March 4th, uh, 1837, Martin Van Buren sworn in as the eighth president of the United States. His inaugural address is mostly praise of Andrew Jackson. After the presidency, Jackson goes back to live at the Hermitage. He continues to be involved with state and national politics, especially coming out against secession. Van Buren becomes deeply unpopular because of the Panic of 1837, which he didn't even cause. Uh, Jackson continues to support measures such as the annexation of Texas and James K. Polk. In the 1844 election, uh, James was not annexed. He was, he was supporting the annexation of Texas, and he was supporting James K. Polk in the 1844 election. And then Jackson dies at the Hermitage back in Tennessee on June 8th, 1845, at the age of 78 of chronic dropsy, a condition characterized by an excess of watery fluid collected in the cavities or tissues of the body and heart failure. And that's the day Linda assures us that his soul went straight to the depths of the hottest parts of hell. And that takes us out of today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. 
What a life, huh? Dude accomplished a lot, and he did a lot of things that history would judge him harshly for. Uh, his treatment of both African Americans and American Indians, pretty brutal for the most part. Uh, adding more to his confu- confusing legacy, he also adopted an American Indian uh, boy, Theodore, and a and, and Creek boy named uh, Lincoya. I mean, who saw that coming? Uh, the Jacksons, though they had no children of their own, cared for nine other children besides the adopted American Indian boys. Uh, the children were all the orphan kids of family, friends, or neighbors. So, you know, he couldn't have been that evil, Linda. I guess Jackson, you know, he just didn't want anyone else to grow up, you know, how he had grown up, you know, with uh, no family. During his lifetime, he was hailed as the second George Washington because of his military successes during the War of 1812. However, in the second half of the 20th century, historical works about Andrew Jackson turned to focus on his slave owning and policies about American Indians. Who knows how he will be viewed in another hundred years? Uh, let's look back again at how I viewed him today in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Andrew Jackson was America's first redneck hillbilly president. He was the first president born to immigrate, uh, immigrant parents, and those parents were the looked down upon Scotch Irish. Number two, the dude was an undeniable tough son of a bitch. He challenged the most successful duelist of Tennessee, Charles Dickinson, to a fight to the death and won by allowing himself to get shot first, shrugging off a musket ball to the chest and then shooting his man down. Like, good God. Uh, number three, Andrew Jackson was the hero of the War of 1812 for kicking British ass in the Battle of New Orleans, even though his force was greatly outnumbered by and his men far more undertrained under- than their British counterparts. His forces suffered less than 50 casualties to more than 1,500 for the British. Number four, Jackson lost both brothers and both parents by the age of 14 after fighting the Revolutionary War at the age of 13. He faced more hardship and accomplished more with his life by the time he'd barely hit puberty than I have in four decades. Maybe fuck Andrew Jackson is the right sentiment. Number five, new info. Andrew Jackson had a pet parrot. Seriously. I told this to Lindsay last night, and she was like, no, stop with your crazy lies. And I was like, no, he did. He really did. The bird's name was Paul, originally meant for uh, Jackson's wife, Rachel. But after she passed away, Jackson became the African gray parrot's caretaker. And the bird, one of Jackson's most frequent companions towards the end of his life, had to be removed from his funeral for cursing up a storm and offending everyone. Language most likely picked up from its time spent with, with the former president. The Reverend William Menifee Normand not Reverend Doctor, just Reverend, uh, the man who presided at Jackson's funeral said this about the pet. Before the sermon and while the crowd was gathering, a wicked parrot that was a household pet got excited and commenced swearing so loud and long as to disturb the people that had to be carried from the house. He went on to say uh, <laughs> the presidential parent was excited by the multitude and let loose perfect gusts of cuss words. People were horrified and awed at the bird's lack of reverence. Oh, man, what a fun funeral. We could all be so lucky to have that kind of fun at, at, at our funerals. I might have to, uh, to give me a parrot, you know, in my later years. Maybe teach it a few words. Teach it to say a few things like, what is big deal? So he dead now. No tears. He jerking soft cock in heaven now. Who wants a rustle parrot? Who wants a rustle chickatiel parrot? Time suck. Top five takeaways. Andrew Jackson has been sucked. Fascinating life. Uh, one of a kind, man. Big thanks, as always, to the Time Suck team. High Priestess of the Suck Harmony Vela Camp. Jesse Guardian of Gam- Grammar Dobner. I was not able to get, because I'm mountain climb, I wasn't able to get the script to him in time. 
And you know what? And I missed him on several phrases. I'm like, ah, I think I said that wrong. Jesse would have caught that. Very important team member. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the Bit Elixir team, Danger Brain, Space Lizards and Merch Wizards, Axis Apparel, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Huge thanks to OG Bojangles Research Assistant Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans. She killed it again. Uh, very, very sharp meat sack. All these, all these brilliant young lady researchers. I'm excited to see uh, what they're going to accomplish later on in life. But not in a hurry to see that happen. Because that means that I get a lot older. And fuck that. So what's up next week? Roanoke. That's what. We go pre-Andrew Jackson in the history of American pre-colonialism. In 1587, more than 100 men, women, and children settled on Roanoke Island in what is now North Carolina. War with Spain prevented speedy resupply of the colony. The first English settlement in the New World backed by Elizabethan courtier uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. When a rescue mission arrived three years later, the town was abandoned and the colonists had completely vanished. What happened to them? Did those big-ass, eye-eating, Roanoke recluse spiders get them? Maybe. Probably not, since they made that up. Who knows? So what happened to the members of the Lost Colony? Why was the word uh, Croatoan carved in a tree? Why is that the only possible clue to their disappearance? Or are are there other truths? I don't know. I I I gotta get in there. Excited to suck a mystery this coming week. Now let's hear about what uh, some of you all have had to say this past week in today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, Annalise Michelle update, that exorcism episode. Uh, from Time Sucker Katie Mays, who writes in saying, Dear High King Suckington of Motherfuckington. Ooh, I like that. That was nice. I've been catching up on all the episodes, and I recently finished the uh, one on the demonic possession of Annalise Michelle. Let me tell you about the paranormal fuckery that went down while I was listening. I made it all the way to the part where you played the actual audio from the exorcism. That's when shit started happening. I got through approximately five seconds of the real audio when the sound cut out. The timer on the episode was still running, but no sound came out at all. I toggled between play and pause about 20 times with no results. I thought perhaps it was the app, so I paused the episode, closed the app, and started over. Nothing. So then I thought it was my phone. Turned the whole damn thing off and started over again. Finally, the audio was back. Must have been my stupid phone. A bit later, you get to the second piece of real exorcism audio. At this point, I finally heard the first part and I'm pretty fucking wigged out. You started to play the audio and the sound cuts out again. I go through the same steps as before with no results again. By now, I'm pretty sure a demon is playing with my phone. Or God is trying to tell me to not listen to this demonic bullshit. I turn the volume all the way up the max during my fiddling when all of a sudden the audio comes back I scream like a little bitch and threw the phone across the room <laughs> threw the phone across the room took me 30 minutes to get up the nerve to play the rest of the episode no more demons fucked with my phone a couple days later I finally figured out what the hell actually happened as it turns out uh, the day I was listening to that episode my husband was outside washing my car my phone is paired to my car through bluetooth Every time my husband turned on the car to move it or vacuum it, the audio cut out and played in the car. So while I was freaking out about possible demons in my phone, my husband was turning the car on and demonic German screams were playing from the speakers there. I thought you'd get a good laugh over my paranoid dumbass. Feel free to share if you'd like. Hail Nimrod, soon to be space lizard, Katie Mace. P.S. Bog bog, playboy. Bog bog. Ha, your poor husband. Every time he turns on the car to wash it, uh, sounds like a pretty nice dude, by the way, washing your car. I'm going to have to make sure Lindsay doesn't hear this episode and expect her car to be washed. Uh, and, then, and then every time he turns it on, you know, he just hears like, you get away from me. You can't even find you. Glad you got it all figured out. Uh, be gone, Lucifina. 
And uh, and where's Chicken Joe been these past few episodes? Feel like he's due for an appearance. I hope he stops by soon. Uh, have a great week, Katie. Thank you for that. And I love that you threw your phone in, in fear. God, what 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 great coincidence! Just for the uh, you know for the sake of this story, to have him you know happen to mess with your car in those moments during the podcast. Okay, now we have time sucker uh, Ryan Wagoner talking about doing his best to recover from Hurricane Florence. He wrote in saying, "Hey, master, this suck. Wanted to drop you a quick hello and just say thank you from Wilmington, North Carolina. On Tuesday after the storm, still in the dark." We lost power on Friday at the start of the rampage and don't look to get that sweet AC lights cooking stove or refrigerator back until maybe this Friday I heard. So hopefully, yeah, that was that would be this past Friday. Hopefully you're back. Uh, I usually listen to the show as soon as it's dropped at work in the sweet red classic diesel repair garage of Coca-Cola, but damn Lucifina blocked the roads and blocked out my cell service until today. Hail Nimrod, he let a sliver of cell signal get to my phone just long enough to download my weekly fix of the suck. And what do you know? It's about electricity. Fitting for sure, but uh, but know that listening to your crazy ass made me happy for a bit, despite the storm and cleanup we're all going through down here. I never write in, but as a faithful spacer myself, oh, thank you. I always read the boards and get a kick out of your stand-up shows and podcasts and have for years. I knew I couldn't make it to the recent Charlotte, North Carolina show a couple months back, uh, but I had my girlfriend buy two tickets anyway just to support your show. Wow, wow, man. And hopefully spawn a return visit to North Carolina, maybe even a show close to Wilmington. Well, I'm definitely getting back to Charlotte. Got to figure out the date. I'm getting back. Uh, Got to get back to the chainsaw and filling the generators. But thank you for lifting my spirits as always and keep up the great work. Love you, man. Ryan Wagner. Ah, we'll love you, Ryan. Glad the suck could be a bit of a pick-me-up during a tough time. Glad to hear you have a generator and a damn chainsaw. I feel like Andrew Jackson would be proud of that. Generator? Chainsaw? No, he's all right. He's a good man. I uh, hope the flooding's going down where you are. I know water levels are actually still rising in some parts of North Carolina, so fuck Florence. Uh, yeah, and hope you're well. Thank you for listening. Uh, now we have an old men in black update from time sucker Melissa Reynolds. Uh, Reynolds, there we go. Melissa writes in saying, hey, mother sucker, I was recently converted in May to the cult of the curious and have since been going through the backlog of your podcast. I was originally going to write one massive email with all, <laughs> with all the problems and inconsistencies. Oh, man, I can't wait to see what comes up from today. Uh, leaving off whichever ones you covered in the time sucker updates, but I just finished the real men in black episode and I could not keep this to myself. I used to work as a librarian at a local Michigan public library, and I have met Raven Mendel. Oh, my God. She would ask for shit tons of cryptozoology books that I would have to request from other libraries. Many a time was I in her company for a prolonged period of time in which she would request that the library buy some crazy person's dream interpretation Bible or that crystal researcher's thesis. Every interaction with her was a wackadoodle fest. Anyways, I needed to get that off my chest. I work at a university now and have access to top resources for free. Hit me up if you need university resources for your research. I don't work as a librarian anymore, so I would love to practice the skills. I'm still paying off for, uh, um, still paying off for. The cult, I've been loving so much. Love how well-researched your show is and keep sucking, Melissa. Oh, thank you. That is great, Melissa. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for the offer. Uh, we go in waves with researchers, sometimes having more help uh, that we can use, which I'm so thankful for. Sometimes definitely needing more help. Uh, we have a pretty big team right now, but we'll keep you in mind for sure for future assistance. And I, I think your offer is super kind and appreciated and it's very nice. So sincerely, thank you. And Raven, by the way, if, the, if some of you don't remember, uh, someone who claimed to have been visited visited by the men in black, if you'll, re, if you'll recall, uh, her services include, should you like to hire her, these are listed on her website, Oracle, Crystal Ball, Tarot, Aura Scanning, Dream Analysis, and Haunting Assessments. So this is who Melissa was talking to at the library. Oh, my God. Hi, uh, Raven. I'm here for my crystal ball appointment, and this is my son, Frank. He has a 2 p.m. Oracle reading. 
Should he come in the lobby and wait, uh, or should he wait in our van, the one out in the parking lot with a unicorn and wizard custom paint on the side? Okay, one more. Quick funny one from Time Sucker Gabriel Cox. Gabe writes in and says, hey, Dan, the cat who killed Curiosity. I've been a fan of yours for years. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. I'm going back to college, and your succulent wordsmithing makes the walk and train rides tolerable every day. I meant to tell you this story for a while now, but I've been lazy and forgetful. The only time I have run into a time sucker in the wild was during your Stanford experiment episode. I was driving home from a meeting while listening to this episode and decided to get some fast food. Now, usually I turn my mic or podcast down when I pull up to the window, but by the grace of Nimrod slash, uh, mis- uh, slash mischievousness of Lucifina, I did not this time. Right as the kid opens the window to get my money, you began a long diatribe about sodomy. I swear to God, you said it repeatedly just to embarrass me in this situation. After an excruciatingly long period of staring at each other with your sodomy talk in the background, the kid just smirks and says, time suck? Nice. I listened to that episode this morning. He shut the window to get my food, and I laughed to the point of having to pause the podcast so I wouldn't miss anything. Thanks for that. It had been a really long day, and a good laugh was needed. Gabe Cox. Oh, man, thank you for sharing that. That is hilarious. Not a lot of people understand a long comedic diatribe on sodomy. You know, just like sodomy is not for everybody. Neither is joking about sodomy. Some people don't like to hear the word sodomy said over and over. Just sodomy, sodomy, sodomy. But here on Time Suck, we can take just about anything, including sodomy. Yes, that was another sodomy joke. Sodomy and just sodomizing sodomy. Sometimes you take it. And yes, I am saying sodomy a lot right now, hoping to create another possible awkward situation for one of you listeners. Thanks for writing in, everybody. Uh, Hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, have a great week, you beautiful meat sacks. Try not to get into any any, uh, pistol duels. If you do get into a pistol duel, maybe, you know, maybe not plan on taking that first shot to the chest. Just because it worked for Andrew Jackson doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And more importantly, keep on sucking. Then the pox spread to his dick and balls.